I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Ashley, what does that mean? What can they expect? What should they leave if they do not want to hear? If you guys don't want to hear thoughts, opinions, vibes, you can make it your resolution to buzz off. But if you want to hear the sweet honey between the pages, that's our voices. Oh, and you can stick around. I don't know that our voices are like honey. <laughs> I think that someone who has maybe one of those like hearing things that Lord has. Synesthesia. Yeah, synesthesia. I just watched a Naked and Afraid where this guy found honey and he was obsessed with eating it to get the calories and then it turned out the honey was poison and it was making him <gasps> sick. And in that sense, I do believe that our voices are like honey. And if that's what you want, sweet, sweet poison, stick, stick around, around, baby. Because <laughs> it's a new year and it is the same motherfucking us. Ashley, speaking of a brand new year, it is December 31st. We're recording this right at the plum end of 2022. What is something you'd like to say about yourself? I don't know. Do you have anything to say about this week? How was your holidays? I just feel like we should do a different thing for the year, but I also didn't plan beforehand. And apparently I cannot riff to save my life. Apparently. Okay. I would say, man, I had a lazy week and a half. I did not do anything. I really just like sat around and played with my dog but I would say if I were to like pre-write my memoir for what I'm hoping next year brings manifest yeah no I'm just calling it (laughs) pre-writing kind of like how they do obituaries yeah if I was gonna like write what I think my obituary of 2023 would say it would be like casually productive as your business partner I hate to hear it but continue (laughs) I love that Ashley's like I'm really gearing up to do not much of anything next year (laughs) no my goal is to like not stress myself out to the fucking brim but like still get a lot done but in a way that is productive but not aggressively okay well I know I know how hard you work and I have to say (laughs) I don't know what about your work ethic right now is stressing you out It's the way that I like put pressure on myself to like do a lot and then I get stressed out and then I do none. But I'm like, okay, if I'm just like honest about my to-do list and what actually has to get done, I think I can do it all. But if I like sit down and I say like, okay, from the second I sit down today, I have to get these 15 things done. I won't do it. But if I have blocks throughout the day where I'm like, okay, these 90 minute blocks are going to be my like really get done and work blocks. Maybe I could do it. I'm so excited for you. Yeah, why not? Like I'm going to get more done than I did last year, but in a less stressful way. I'm very similar. (laughs) I'm very similar. And you know that. Well, as your business partner, I love to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm similar in that I also put a lot on my plate and don't get a lot done because then I sit around overwhelming myself with how much I put on my plate. But I feel like I'm more angry at myself about it. And that to me feels productive. And like a very Catholic way, I'm like, yeah, but at least I feel awful about myself. Whereas Ashley's like, I work so freaking hard. I'm like, we don't work hard enough. (laughs) We should die. (laughs) Well, Claire, what do you have to say about yourself for this year or next? You know, I guess just all the things. I was like, we did these. (laughs) Everything you've said, I feel exactly the same. Plus, I feel it's equal and opposite truth. And I feel those simultaneously. (laughs) I feel both that I hope we work a lot harder and are also less stressed out. And also, I believe that looking back at last year, we did a lot. So at the end of the day, I guess not working that hard got us pretty far too. So like, that's fine as well. (laughs) I want to work harder than I worked last year, but I want to be less stressed than I was last year. And I feel like I need to be kinder to myself because let me tell you what, at the end of the day, this is so stupid. I love it. And I'm grateful for all the worms. And I hope that you guys have pre-written the most incredible year for yourselves. I agree. Okay, that's what I'm going to say. As a 30-year-old, I feel I've spent 30 years on this planet having very high ambitions and almost no work ethic, but a ton of guilt and self-hatred about it. And I hope that this year is the year I finally go in and go, Claire, 
instead of hating yourself so much, why don't you just fucking take out the trash or do the dishes when you're done with your dinner? Like I am like a seventh grader who spends weeks and weeks complaining about an essay. And it's like, at this point you could have just written the essay. I hope for the first time in my life, as I always say, I'm going to do, I hope that I recognize that the amount of energy I put into being disappointed in myself and writing lists. (laughs) I hope I just put that into like getting the task at hand done, which is what? A TikTok? Can I say what my... What is that? Posting a fucking Instagram carousel of goddamn Alec Baldwin? Okay, so one thing that I'm really aiming to do is... And I think this is going to be like a fucking game changer overall. Yeah. No aimless scrolling in my phone until after 6 p.m. Man, I would like to join you on that. That's my goal. Because a lot of times right now, I'll wake up, I walk bug, I come home, we sit on the couch just thinking, wow, great walk, good job, guys. And then two hours go by and I'm just like what happened here where was I I'm gonna start putting my phone in the other room when I get work done great the problem is a lot of the work we do is on our phones but it's fine anyway good luck to us I'm gonna do a half marathon I want to do more stand-up this year and that is partially inspired by our first memoirist of the year Ali Wong. And I'm just so excited. We have our good friend, actually one of my very first comedy friends, longest comedy friends, Fumi Abe, coming on at the end to talk about his experience reading the book. And I'm so excited. I think it's our first straight man on this podcast ever. Oh, my God. So be nice to him. Probably last, to be honest. But he's a good one. Yeah, he's like the only good one. And that's why he's the list. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just so excited. Let's get into Ali Wong. Ali Wong was born April 19th, 1982. So she is currently 40 years old, but this book came out in 2019, so when she was 38. I just want to trigger warn this up top. We like this book. So if you're sitting there with bated breath being like, oh no, are they going to ruin somebody I love? We will not. We can't. She lived up to my own expectations and hopes and dreams. Here's the thing. Do I think this is a phenomenal book? Honestly, no. I think that it's fine. It's a little all over the place. But in a way that I feel like feels very true to her voice in every version of it we've ever seen. And I like her a lot. And so I feel like it works. Are we biased? Of course. People always accuse me of bias. And I'm like, yeah, fucking of course. This is a podcast that is my opinion. I have bias. I'm not a news anchor. Do you see me up here acting boring? No. I think if it wasn't qualified as a memoir, it would fill everything you want. So this book, I feel like covers just everything in her life, category by category. I mean, each section, it just goes lightning quick. Why I'm writing this book. Here's like my husband. Here is my children. Here is my work life. Here is my take on stand up. And there's like a couple of kind of erroneous chapters. That thing about the DJ, I was like, I don't think we needed this. No, I will definitely say at the end, you could feel the fight to fill pages. We did get a couple of listicles. At one point, we just got a graph on how to know if the Asian restaurant you're eating at is good or not. I mean, that's not writing it was truly an excel spreadsheet and I will say I don't know that she worked so hard on it I don't know that she had been thinking about writing a memoir but I think as a person and as a comedian she is extremely skilled and gifted at getting vulnerable raw open honest and funny quickly I don't think it's particularly oh she is open she shows you right into her butthole you're up in the guts constantly (laughs) and I just think it's not that hard for her to do that after years and years of practice as a comic So I think her 70% effort is good enough. That's the thing is I think that we like her and I think she's open and I think she's vulnerable and she gives us what she feels like giving us and she's honest about what she's giving us. So I think that that's another thing is she doesn't sit there up top and be like, I'm giving you 1000% of everything I have and then she doesn't. 
she's telling you exactly what you're going to get and you get it. Preface, why I'm writing this book. So this whole book is a letter to her daughters, the girls. And I think that that's why it's so good. And I think in reading this book, I could feel that I wasn't even the target audience. Like the target audience is for her Asian American young daughters to get to know her and the life lessons she wants to give them. And I think in reading this book, I could suddenly feel the awareness of the male gaze in other books. And of course, Olivia Munn is an extreme example. But thinking about Amy Poehler even and why we didn't like that book, I suddenly in juxtaposition was like, oh, that book was unfortunately for women. And I say that from her perspective. I feel like she's like, I don't want to write a book that's only for women because I'm a comedian to men and women. I mean, in her book, she literally says, there's probably boys reading this too. And if you're a boy reading this, I wrote it for you too. And you're like, why though? Because that's who she wishes her audience was. Yeah. Whereas Ali Wong, I think, is someone who's very happy with the audience that she has. And she is not interested in playing up to either a white or a male audience. She is going to be herself and she will let that affect who it affects. Okay, so why she's writing this book. She says that many times she almost quit. And this is still in the Roman numeral pages when I texted Claire about how obsessed I was with Ali Wong because she talks in this whole preface about being a fucking idiot. And I love that. From one idiot to another, nothing but respect for my dummies. Yeah, she's like, I'm scared that writing this book, my big secret's going to come out. And she tells a story about a time she was at a work event where they did a (laughs) trivia survey. And they said, how far away is the moon? And everyone else correctly guessed around 250,000 miles and she put down 5 billion miles away (laughs) and she's like that was my best honest guess and she says everyone laughed and I don't really get why it's that funny (laughs) but then she goes on to be like listen there's a lot of things I'll never know and I don't want to know and the one line in this book that made me laugh out loud is it the seashell thing yes can I read it (laughs) I highlighted it because I was like this just made me laugh over and over again and it was so you Ashley was like she's my soul sister and I was like this is the most Ashley line in the world. She goes, I believe it sounds like the ocean when you hold certain seashells up to your ear because you can take the seashell out of the ocean, but you can't take the ocean out of the seashell. <laughs> you can't. She says, the idea for this book is inspired mostly by a note from my father that began, Dear Alexandra. He had left it for me in a sealed envelope before he passed away. He had been battling cancer and depression for a while, and he knew he was going to die soon. In it, he told me he loved me and promised I would have a great life. This letter is for my children should something happen to me these are all the answers to questions you haven't yet asked this book is also meant to address a lot of the questions I get asked by young people like what's it like to be an Asian American woman in entertainment how do you balance family and career it is very funny to me and I like the way she keeps on joking about having monetized her FAQ because I'm like good for you dude that's a smart use for a book yeah just be like people ask me these questions all the time I'm gonna put them in print once and then if you ask me again you look unresearched yeah if you want to ask me a question Twenty one ninety nine, twenty five in Canada. And then the first chapter of this book is called How I Trapped Your Father. And this, I want to say up top, she talks a lot about trapping her husband. If you've seen her special, she talks about it all the time. In a lot of her content, she talks about it. In this book, she says it a lot. They are, at current point in time, divorced. Yeah, we talk about it at the end with our conversation with Fumi. This is hard for us. As to female comedians, unfortunately, I do think Ali Wong was kind of the light at the end of the tunnel. She was the gold standard for women who have it all. And uh, it turns out you can't. It doesn't exist. Love isn't real. Well, not that love isn't real, but that... That this love, this supportive like woman pursuing her passion while a man watches with a smile on his face from the sidelines, that love might not be real. So it starts with Dear Girls. Your dad is the, and then in parentheses, if we are divorced by the time you read this, please skip to the next sentence. Best. 
but I didn't just find him overnight. In the fall of 2009, I'd been living in New York City for a year and had been unlucky when it came to love and casual sex. And then she talks about how five men in a row could not get hard when she tried to fuck them, which is a lot. That's a lot. I mean, everyone's met a man who has had troubles. I don't even want to call it troubles. Like, I don't want to shame anyone. I mean, sometimes girls have trouble getting horny. Sometimes boys have trouble getting horny. That's, like, fine. But I feel like for five men in a row to not be able to stay hard for you, that's tough stuff. It's just a lot in a row, randomly, at coincidence. But can I say one other thing? I think that her and her husband, or previous, her, her and her first husband, I think she says they got engaged when she was 28. Mm-hmm. That's also tough for me to have her like running around town talking about all her trials and tribulations and then still being like engaged to a Harvard businessman by 28. I'm like, okay. I guess I am confused about the timeline. So they're engaged at 28. They met when she was 27, she says. She was at a wedding. Okay. So she moved to New York when she was 26. Okay. Got it. But she says they met at 27 because then later he's like, I know you were stressed by how slow I wanted to take our relationship. I would not say it's slow to... Spend one full year dating before you're engaged. Yeah, and I also will say, sorry, I'm getting ahead of ourselves in this book, but I feel like it's important in this chapter. She talks about having started stand-up in San Francisco, and she had a serious comedy boyfriend there. Then she moves to New York, has like one year of bad fucking, and then like met her future husband. So when she goes on and on about how bad dating is, I'm just like, for who? <laughs> it is bad, but for who are, who are you talking about? It seems bad, but who told you? <laughs> <laughs> so then she just talks about all these experiences. Dating, and she's like, I thought I was going to move to New York and have the Sex in the City experience where everybody would just be eating ass perfectly. She's obsessed with eating ass. It comes up a lot. She talks about how much she loves Asian American men. She goes, I've always loved Asian American men, and I hope you end up with an Asian American man or woman as well. In fact, it would be wonderful if you could end up with an Asian American woman and don't have to weather through any bummer boners. There are a lot of advantages to being with someone of your own race. The cultural shorthand makes it easier. And so then she talks about why she loves dating Asian men, and it's because they get the food. They're never going to be weirded out by her food. She's not going to have to explain to them to take their shoes off at the front door. She's like, Asian men are a lot more hygienic, and I just think they're fucking hot. Asian men are also extremely attractive. I grew up in San Francisco where there are plenty of Asian men to choose from. There are Asian American women who are proudly proclaimed they do not date Asian men. They are not just snobs, but probably grew up too isolated from fellow Asian Americans and believe the same stereotypes about us that mainstream America does. That we are boring, that we are great at STEM and not so great at anything creative. But I am an Asian woman with an Asian fetish for Asian men. Have you seen their cheekbones? That's a big part of her identity is that growing up on the West Coast, she had a lot of Asian people around her. And she's like, I just have a lot of Asian pride and I never had a hard time fitting in. So she's having a hard time dating, I guess, for one year. She talks about not having anyone buy her dinner, which, hey, man, I can relate. How just the single life in New York itself is quite lonely because New York is a pretty social city. But sometimes, especially in the winters in New York, she doesn't say that specifically, but I, I understand what she's talking about, that in New York, not having a go-to person, you have to work harder at your social life. And she was living in just like a sea of roommates, which I think can be very overwhelming. But once again, I'm pretty sure this was an experience that she had for one year or less. So she goes to a wedding on the West Coast. And at the wedding, she sees a guy that she finds very hot. She finds out that he lives in New York and he's into wellness. So she goes up to him and is just like, hey, I'm vegan too. And he's like, oh, okay. And she's not vegan at all. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should come and I'll feed you vegan food sometime. And he's like, cool. Well, I'm talking to a friend. And she's like, great, well, come see me do comedy. And he's like, totally. She emails him to come to a comedy show, and he does. And she talks about, in her early comedy, she used to have this joke where she would fully moon the audience. 
I used to do a joke where I do an impression of an animated e-card. I'd hum row, row, row your boat while doing the robot and making a cartoonishly happy face. Then I turn around, bend over, and pull my pants down to show the whole audience my bare ass and say, what's cracking? That is bold. <laughs> I don't even get the joke, but God bless. I know it worked because she was headlining. <laughs> I was an untamable spirit right away. It's like that old saying, if you can't handle me when I show my gaping butthole, you don't deserve the rest of me or however it goes. Anyway, the risk paid off. Your dad saw my ass and pubes on a stage surrounded by strangers and emailed me immediately after the show telling me that he hadn't laughed that hard in a while. In his email, he wrote, my hands were buzzing. It's still one of the oddest things anyone has said to me in response to my comedy. I mean, that's cute. I mean, it's so cute. And it's also, as a female comedian, that is the dream that some guy's going to watch you do comedy and be so blown away and not at all insecure or nervous about how funny you are and how much attention you need. And there are so many things that people say to you after you do comedy. And I have so much space for random responses from random people from family members from I don't have that space man I've had some things said to me and I'm like I wish you hadn't said that I mean I whatever but like you move past it but if it's someone you're dating there are very few acceptable things to say if I'm dating someone and he comes to see me do stand-up for the first time I mean it's truly a make or break of like can we go forward because if he says something fucking weird then we I can't also to just start there I feel like it's such a great blank slate because yeah, it's like if you don't want to ask me out after this, then don't. I mean, it's true. If they can't handle you at showing your butthole to the whole audience, then they're not going to be able to handle the rest of you because that's a lot of you. Yeah, but I don't know that he could handle the rest of her. They got divorced. <laughs> he was like, I didn't think billions of people would see your butthole. I thought it would be just a couple hundred at a time. So they end up going on a date. It's a horrible date. He takes her to some horrible Asian restaurant that she's like, it made Panda Express look like a Michelin-starred restaurant. Then he doesn't have any cash. It's cash only. He has no cash, so she has to pay for it. So they just do not speak again for a while. Yeah, that is tough, to be honest. And then she sees him walking down the street in the exact same outfit they went on the date in. He's always wearing Lululemon workout clothes because he's always just getting back from yoga. She sees him and she's like, fuck, he's hot. And I guess they email again and they go on another date, this time to a better place. And this time he definitely pays for her. She's like, I ordered the most expensive thing because he owed me. <laughs> Good. Uh, and then they just started dating. They just like started going on nice little dates and they were really interested in each other. Yeah. I mean, they were engaged a year later. <laughs> so then she talks about having her children. She's been pregnant three times. Her first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. And I think that this is something that Ali Wong has really I don't know about pioneered, but in my world, pioneered the discussion on. Her special is why I know that miscarriages are so common. And I think in a world where it is so hard to say something fresh or new, I think most things have been said. One of the advantages to being a woman in comedy is that so much of like women's lives are untouched or undiscussed because we weren't really allowed to speak about it for so long. Yeah. And I agree. There is a lot about pregnancy and birth that I kind of wish I didn't know, that I only know because of Ali Wong. And I think she has really put out a lot of information there. But I do think her conversation about miscarriage, I think that that is honestly one of the most incredible ways that stand-up has like maybe changed lives. Because I think that miscarriages are so under-discussed. The amount of people that in the last few years I've found out that I know throughout my lifetime have had a miscarriage is shocking. She says when you have a miscarriage, there are like a glowing top five questions people ask. Number one, why? Number two, well, did you take folic acid? Number three, it was probably from all the performing. Four, was it because you were stressed out? And five, was the doctor able to determine the cause? So the fact that people come at the mom when something this traumatic happens and say, well, what did you do is horrifying to me, especially because I was actually looking at something Kate Kennedy from Be There in Five posted recently, and apparently it is an enormous myth that stress and your emotions 
are what cause a miscarriage. And I haven't really looked into it yet, but I was so interested in that commentary because I always thought that that was possible. Like you could have been doing deep breathing. Like why did you let yourself get so stressed out? That is your fault at all. Because even if you didn't mean to get stressed, that was still something that you did. And so she talks about it helps so much to know that you're not the only one who had one because then you realize it's not your fault. Miscarriages don't discriminate and there is nothing I could have done. I found great comfort in knowing that Beyonce also miscarried. If the goddess queen had a miscarriage, it's okay that I had one too. In fact, we are part of a special club now. And then she talks about finding out that Michelle Obama had one. And just when women talk about their experiences, you feel less alone. I agree with you. I think that Ali Wong's special talking about that made huge strides and helping normalize the conversations and make people feel less alone. So three months after her miscarriage, she gets pregnant again. And she says, this time I made sure not to tell anyone until I was four months in. And it is interesting because I've heard people be like, why can't you tell anyone you're pregnant until the second trimester? And I think it comes from this place of not realizing that it is such a personal and intense conversation to have because it is so common that things go wrong. It's hard to have to tell every stranger. You know what I mean? If you tell your bodega guy, oh yeah, I'm expecting. And then he innocently asks you about it later. You don't have to explain to him what happened. Yeah. And so she talks about how this time uh, her first miscarriage completely informed her second pregnancy and one she didn't tell anybody until the fourth month and she also says it made me so grateful for every minute and I was so uncomfortable and I was puking constantly and I felt like shit but I was like how lucky am I to feel like shit she wears tighter clothes she's excited to wear maternity clothes and she's like I want to look more pregnant than I am because how lucky am I to look this pregnant I don't care if I gain a shit ton of weight I want to show it off because I feel so grateful and then she talks about having complications with this first pregnancy there was issues with getting nutrition to the baby so they were going to have to deliver early and she was so anxious about that because she had just recorded a special despite having kept it a secret for the first part of her pregnancy she became extremely known (laughs) for being a pregnant comedian she was very pregnant in her first special and she was like well I recorded a whole special pregnant if something happens to my baby and I think that this was like a very honest thing to say yeah to be like what's going to happen to my special if something happens to this baby. Uh, I remember her even talking in this special that she was like, I couldn't have done these miscarriage jokes until I became visibly pregnant again because it lets the audience relax and know that it all worked out and it's okay. Like if they can see that I'm sitting here with the pregnancy at the very least, they can feel comfortable laughing at my pain because the pain has an end point. So she ends up having to get an early C-section and she realizes when it comes to having kids, you just have to relinquish control. She had hoped to have a real hippy-dippy give birth through breathing in a pond by your home birth plan. And then, of course, she had to be induced, and the induction didn't even work, so then she had to get a C-section, and she was in horrible pain, so she got an epidural. And then the pain was still bad, so she had some Vicodin later, and she goes, I was telling my friend, my pharmacist friend Eileen, who had just had a C-section with twins a month earlier, her response to my question about safety was, you have suffered enough. That became my mantra for motherhood from there on out. You have suffered enough. If you can make it easier, make it easier and don't feel guilty about it. She has another thing that she says later in this book about motherhood where she's talking about her mom being there for her when she is raising young kids and how hard it is and how nice it is to have your mom there. She has the realization that it's not about what organic food you feed your kids, what baby Einstein fucking symphonies you show them. It's about being there for them like your relationship is built on the relationship you have with your kids not feeding them carrots and I think that that is really interesting and beautiful too because even if you can't be there like it's about knowing your kids and not being like well I have to get them in ballet and gymnastics and this and that and that and that no matter what you do no matter what you feed your kids being a good mom to them is the most important thing she also has a story of her husband in the delivery room and (sighs) 
unfortunately, I mean, he sounds like a good guy. I want to know what went wrong. I have to know what went wrong. She says, it was so painful. He took my hand and I pulled his ear right up to my mouth and I said, we are never doing this again. Like a good man, he said, okay. But 10 minutes later, Mary came out. I saw her cute little face above this curtain and immediately said to daddy, let's do it again. Like a good man, he said, okay. She also says that he was there when she was getting a C-section and so he saw all of her guts. And she goes, well, you can't get divorced once he's seen your spleen. Turns out you can. You can. And then she ends it saying, if I hadn't had that miscarriage, you, my dear Mari, never would have been born. And as I write this letter, Nikki is sleeping in her swing chair one month old. I am wearing a diaper because I still have afterbirth leaking out of my pussy. My breasts are veiny and engorged with milk. My shirt has baby shit stains. And I'm so tired that I feel like I've been swimming in the ocean for 20 days straight. But it's worth it, mostly. So then she has uh, tips on giving birth. We don't need to walk through all these, but if you're about to give birth, honestly, this is graphic and helpful. <laughs> and then she talks about going back to work, which is something that we talk about all the time on this podcast. We talk all the time about the way that women who are working mothers have talked about going back to work. And it really seems to swing between, I have no problem with it. I have a nanny and it's the hardest thing that's ever happened. I don't think I can do it. And I think she does a really great job of just walking through the realities of it. I compare this to the Amy Poehler book. And I felt very frustrated by Amy Poehler because, as you guys know, if you listen to the episode, her answer was, I have help. And it's never a problem. And I love my job. And I've never had a regret. I've never had a doubt. And I'm just like, okay, even if that's true, you've never once been like, this is a lot of work. You've never once been like, I have to make a choice and it sucks that I have to weigh my options. I just like cannot believe that. And I don't know who it helps to pretend that it's easy. But I do think the difference between Ali Wong's book and Amy Poehler's book to go back to, who is it for? And I feel like Amy Poehler, Amy Poehler's whole book to me felt written in an angry response to anyone who's ever said, what's it like to be a woman in comedy? And she's like, I'm fine, I'm a man. What are you talking about? There is no difference. I just happen to have given birth to my babies and that's the only difference between me and anybody else. Whereas Ali Wong, even though she also does not like that question, is not trying to keep up with the boys club. She's trying to build her own life and her own destiny. And it feels different. And it's why this book feels much more authentic and useful to me as a female comedian. I'm like, this book, I don't know. I just feel like I'm talking to somebody who actually knows what they're saying and isn't lying to me. Yeah. She says her whole life, all she ever wanted to be was a stay-at-home mom. And I know that's a lot of her first special is this joke of like, I just wanted to have babies. And then her dream day was like, wake up, meditate, make a smoothie, go to Soul Cycle, go to brunch, nap, meditate, pick vegetables for my own garden and then make dinner for my husband have sex and watch Netflix and go to bed and then she realized that this perfect version of being a stay-at-home mom is an Instagram mom's life it's not a mother who parents her children she says I realized I was thinking about Jessica Seinfeld and that is very funny because I'm obsessed with Jessica Seinfeld she then goes on a whole page long thing about Jessica Seinfeld's Instagram and how amazing it is because it's just so unapologetically white it's just a lot of time spent near waters, lots of Michael Kors resort tunics, and tons of artisanal baked goods. But that's because she's married to Jerry Seinfeld. And so her only real job on earth is not embarrassing Jerry Seinfeld. The goal is to find a man like Jerry Seinfeld, a husband slash sponsor slash man to commission whatever creative or philanthropic endeavors you've dreamed of pursuing. You want to publish a cookbook? Your wish is granted. She just goes on and on about Jessica Seinfeld's life. It is very funny. I truly believe that Jessica Seinfeld is like a mirage that exists within one square mile of the Hamptons. And <laughs> she's like a hologram. And there are lights and holographic sensors within one square mile of the Hamptons and she cannot step outside of it. Like maybe she's a ghost. Maybe she's it's kind of like Wanda technology from WandaVision. I didn't see that. Okay. <laughs> but probably I was thinking of her like the mom from smart house. 
I just can't believe Ali Wong said that about Jessica Seinfeld. They might know each other. I also love that every female comedian has to pretend that they're friends with Jessica Seinfeld because they have to suck up to her to get to the husband. Her point is, you're not married to Jerry Seinfeld because Jessica already did that. And so you don't get to have that life. So your stay-at-home motherhood is very different and very hard. Her husband does seem like a good person. Obviously, as we know, later he quit his job to be a full-time stay-at-home dad. He is very willing to take on equal work at home. And I think that that really helped empower her to go back to work. And I don't want to be like, you have to be empowered to go back to work. But it is hard. She talks about how being a mom is just harder than being a dad. Being a mom who is a master of her craft is harder than being a dad who is a master of his craft. We see men all the time and we like admire them for their greatness and no one ever mentions whether or not they actually parented their kids. Yeah, she talks about Jiro dreams of sushi and Jiro's sons that are supposed to be his protege. And she's like, where was Mrs. Jiro? She doesn't come up once. Who was raising these children while he was jerking off to fish? <laughs> she talks about how she was lucky to get any maternity leave. And it was just because she happened to be working on a TV show that had a great showrunner that helped her out. But in America, you might not even get that. And how she wants to raise her children differently than her parents raised her. This runs fast. I'm sorry. I'm like flipping through this now. In one page, she's like, the difference between men and women. My prenup. Working. She like really does just run through topics in a way that you don't feel it necessarily. But physically looking at it on this page. Obviously, we try to space out this podcast. We can't sit here and read you every sentence. But I'm like, every paragraph touches on an incredibly important and different topic. I mean, this whole book is, I think, six topics. And then every thought she's had on those topics just spit into the page real quick, rapid fire. There is no fluff. There is no, I mean, there is fluff at the end, but within the important topics, I don't feel like she goes overboard. It really feels like, no, this is what I'm talking about. Here's this idea. Here's this concept. Here's that concept. Next chapter. And you're like, okay. So she says one of the real reasons she went back to work is that when her and her husband got married, she signed a prenup. And she's like, because of that prenup, I always knew that I would have to work forever because should he divorce me, which we now know they have, I wouldn't get anything and I would have to support myself. So don't ever keep your eye off the ball because you never know when it could happen. And she says this line that I really took to heart. When you take more than five evenings in a row off from doing stand-up, you risk becoming unfunny and out of touch. That happened to me. That happened to me. I haven't been doing stand-up lately and I don't even know how to oh, do it. Oh, when I go back, I'm at square one. I'm less than I was before. I've, I'm a newborn baby fucking cub. I feel like I'm speaking a language that went extinct. I feel like I showed up to Italy with a vague memory of Latin and they're like, okay, this <laughs> thing you're trying to recall poorly, even at its best, it wouldn't help here. <laughs> <laughs> so then she gets into her chapter on stand-up and the hustle. In the end, being forced to sign that prenup was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me in my career. And then she concludes it and says, being a working mom is not easy and I constantly feel like I'm failing at both working and being your mom. There's never enough time to write as much as I should or spend as much time with you two girls as I want. Once she went on tour and when she came back, she told her three-year-old, I missed you. And her three-year-old said, no, you didn't. Ouch. It was like a knife to the heart. I felt guilty in that moment. But the truth is that I feel guilty all the time for not cooking more, for not reading more, and for not being there every single night to put you to bed. But she says, at the end of the day, what I know I have in common with stay-at-home moms, we're all just doing our best. And if it isn't good enough for you, wait until you have kids and you'll get it. <laughs> and I just feel like, I guess I think that that's the only take you can have. Just like, hey, I'm trying my best. We're all trying our best. A lot of people have been found wanting. You'll probably be found wanting. And yeah. one day you'll go, what did you want from me? I tried my best. So then she gets into the hustle that is stand-up comedy. She fires off every thought she's had about stand-up. 
I mean, this chapter, I think, is one of the chapters I've related to the most out of any book we've ever read. Yeah. I think we've read a lot of comedy books that I did not feel that they have a comedy experience I can relate to in any way. Ali Wong really had that. There's nothing to do but get your reps in. You're going to get your reps in for years, and you're going to be all over this fucking city. Hers are crazy, though. She's claiming she's getting on stage nine times a night. Well, she says she has gotten on stage nine times a night. She doesn't say she was always doing that. I kind of feel like she carries that number, though, and she's like, you know, I was getting on stage up to nine times a night. And I was like, and how many times was that? There's one comedian in the world who I know was famous for getting on stage like 25 to 30 times a week. And that Mark was Normand? No, Suba Agarwal. So she talks about coming up in stand-up. She says the act of doing stand-up itself isn't that hard. Getting on stage in front of strangers, writing and performing jokes, even bombing, it's the easy part. It's everything else surrounding it that's so difficult. The road, traveling, spending hours on the internet to book the cheapest flights possible, eating a boatload of fried food with ranch dressing because there are no other options, fending off creepy-ass men, steering clear of your idols and funny colleagues who you've learned tend to sexually harass women. And that is... The truth. People are always like, how do you do stand up? It must be so hard to get up on stage. And it's like, it's not that hard. A lot of people get on stage. A lot of them are fucking idiots. The hardest part is figuring out how to do it and do it successfully and like advocate for yourself and not get caught up in stupid comedy and open mic politics, but also make friends and also... It, there's like so much to it. Mm -hmm. So she says like the hard part about stand-up comedy, which is different than online comedy or vlogging or whatever, is the physicality. You physically have to go be in that room. And one from a safety perspective, is, which is what I think she's talking about mostly, that like, you know what I mean? We have to take the L at midnight or you spend money on an Uber and that just does get tiring. But I think in regards to the online comedy, there is a difference between talking to your phone or talking to your laptop and editing a video and being able to control the energy of a room. You can't be a live performer without practicing being a live performer. There's just no shortcut. One of her takes that I don't necessarily agree with is why there aren't more women in comedy. I didn't agree with this either. That's so funny. This is the one thing I was like, mm, this isn't it for me. She writes, females are funny, if not funnier, and definitely quirkier than men, especially in everyday life. And I agree with that. But stand-up comedy is a craft that you have to hone. You have to constantly get out of the comforts of your home at night and go test your material at open mics on the road. And most women don't want to do that. Here's my personal theory on why there aren't more female stand-up comics. Safety. And then she's like, listen, just to do any road gig, I'm getting in an Uber like 10 times a weekend. I'm alone. I'm in Ohio. I'm by myself. I'm meeting strangers. It's not a safe thing to do. And I will say, yeah, I've definitely put my safety on the back burner to do comedy, but it also never really occurred to me that I was doing that. Yeah, I will say that was never a problem. I will say, it, is it unsafe? For sure. But it's no more or less unsafe than being a waitress at a bar that closes late. I mean, it's just at, by default, if you are a woman, the world is less safe for you. Yeah. This is actually, I think, something you said, but something that I very much agree with. I think one of the reasons that women don't do comedy is because they don't think they're allowed to. Like, I think men, it's very easy for a man to think he's extremely funny and just tell all of his friends, like, I'm the funny one in the group and I'm going to go become a stand-up comedian. They don't even think that you have to really be that funny. They think that they're, like, intense, thoughtful, interesting dudes who deserve to share their thoughts on stage constantly. For a woman to think that she is funny enough to go try stand-up, the amount of people that must have told you you're funny is a lot. Yeah. I also think because there are so many male comedians and they all play up that persona of loser that so many men relate to them and they're like, I'm a loser too. I guess I could be very funny. And I'm like, I don't even think you've ever made someone laugh and yet here you are being like, well, I jerk off and can't get laid so this is my space. Whereas for sure, the barrier to entry for a woman 
personally is higher. And that's why I think if you go to open mics, women are funnier. Like at the beginnings, women are funnier than men because only women who should be there put themselves there. Right. Women don't just show up thinking they deserve to be anywhere. So they really have to want it in order to show up in the first place. Whereas men think that they deserve it from the very start. She started in San Francisco, which she says was a great place to start. And it's funny because I've always felt this. I started in New York. Ashley started in L.A. Obviously, those are two A cities. But if you start in a B city, you can kind of become king of the roost in a safe space where you get a lot more stage time because there's a lot less competition. Then you can kind of rise to the top. And what you get to do, which is what she did, is when you're in a Seattle, a San Francisco, an Austin, a Boston, a D.C. Chicago. Chicago. There's a couple others. I would say Chicago is more like A minus. Denver. Denver. There's all these places that have a great club. You work the alt rooms, you get good, and then you can become a regular host or feature act at the club. And then not only are you getting like good paid spots with a good amount of time every week, but you get to meet the headliners. You get to meet all the greats who are coming in and out. And Ali is like, I got to host for all of these amazing comedians, and they've all helped me in my career since. Yeah. And then when you're ready, you get to move to LA or New York. And you can email those people and say, hi, I hosted for you in, in San Francisco. Could I get you coffee sometime? Like you don't hit the ground running, whereas I feel like in New York... Day one, I'm brand new and I'm up against people who already spent five years deciding that this was their passion and their craft and honing themselves. And so I remember moving to New York with, I started comedy around the same time as Eagle Wit and Usama Siddiqui. You guys don't know who they are. I don't know why I'm saying it like you would know them. But I remember being like, holy shit, they're doing like four or five mics a night. They're going so hard. I feel like they have so many jokes written. But like Usama had come from Dallas where he had already been doing it for two years. And so he was coming here almost as like a graduate student. Yeah. And I didn't understand the difference. She also highly recommends telling stand-up comedy class to fuck off. And this I hugely agree with. At bringer shows, at comedy class, there is nothing that you are going to learn for $400 or however the fuck much it costs that you can't learn from just doing a handful of open mics. Just do it or don't. Watch stand-up, study stand-up. You don't need to pay someone to walk you through crafting your first five-minute set. You don't need to write your first five-minute set before you start going up. The amount of people I've met who have been like, I've been working on my set for a couple of months now. I'm getting ready to do my first open mic. Nothing is going to happen for you in that first open mic. It will be seven months before someone remembers your name. Just keep showing up. And something she says that I agree with 100% is from that day forward, I would go up every single night at a different mic and try a million new jokes. I mostly bombed. It's the only way to get good. That's true. Go up, and when you start, you're going to suck. There's just no way to learn stand-up other than doing stand-up, and anyone who tells you differently is trying to scam you. She goes, stand-up is not supposed to be warm and fuzzy or welcoming. If it was, everyone would do it. Some people think that stand-ups are all dysfunctional or have mental health problems or bad families, but I think all you need to be a good stand-up is to have a unique point of view, be funny, and enjoy bombing in front of strangers. You really do have to learn to love bombing. Even now, when the audience is too good, sometimes I think I didn't deserve that. You'll know you're a stand-up when, after a spectacular bomb, you don't feel like you want to quit, but instead the opposite, you want to go up again. If you don't bomb, you'll think you're good and there's no work to do, but there's always work to do. That's the beauty of stand-up. A joke is never finished. Beautiful. She compares it to All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey, and she goes, it's different than music because I could listen to that song forever, and that's my favorite song, and it is a great song, whereas a joke is more like fashion where if you're not constantly innovating and changing, it's stale and boring and out of style. So this chapter, she's very much advising her daughters against doing stand-up, which I get, I think, as a mother to... It's, this is not a healthy craft, I don't think. But she does want them to move somewhere else. 
As much as I would love having you girls near me, you will thrive if you move somewhere else. And at some point, you got to go. Mama loves you, but it's so important to get out of your hometown and get the fuck away from your family. I agree with this wholeheartedly. I've moved a few times, and I don't think I would be even close to the person that I am today if I hadn't just kicked myself out of my own nest. I think no one made me go. A lot of people really thought that that was not a good idea for me. And I have a completely different personality than I did because I think that sometimes when you're around people who know you so well, you have these new ideas and this idea of yourself that everyone around you is saying like, you're a duck. And you're like, I'm not, I don't think, but I can't, this is the Tom Emma Hilton, Watson. Emma Watson thing. <laughs> I agree with it. I really liked that. Yeah. There are a lot of people around you who will tell you exactly who you are and what you are. And it's very hard to, to their face, say, no, I'm not. I think I'm this. You have to go away from them and experiment and then come back and say, this is who I am. I agree. I never moved that far from home. I was always within like a driving distance. And it's actually one of my regrets. I wish I could have moved to LA, but unfortunately, you know that I think car cult culture is the devil. I will not drive a car ever again. I mean, I will a little bit, but like not if I can help it. She also talks about Asian specific lineups and she's like, listen, you have to learn how to do jokes in front of everybody. She started in San Francisco and she's like, there was a ton of all Asian American lineups with shows called like Hustle and Foe. She's like, I did all of the like Asian American only comedy shows. And she goes, they're fun. They're fine. You have to learn how to crush in front of all types of people. It can't just be the people that relate to you. And she's like, the first time I went to Atlanta, I did a mostly black room and bombed. So then I went out of my way to go to Oakland and make sure I was getting in front of mostly black crowds, white crowds, like Asian. Like, you have to be able to do comedy in front of everybody. And she's like, the people I knew that kept to themselves in their own communities in comedy in San Francisco, they all quit. Because they just didn't get anywhere. And comedy is all about putting yourself outside of your comfort zone. The joke should work. The thing is, stand-up is such a toxic culture that I understand the compulsion to make safe spaces, but there has to be a way to do it without it being at the expense of the craft. As a female comic, it was always hard to not date a stand-up comic, mostly because when I dated men outside of stand-up comedy, their attempts at funny made me cringe. She lists all these guys that she dated who would steal jokes and say them to her, and she'd be like, yeah, that's a Mitch Hedberg joke, or yeah, that's a Don Rickles joke. Even today... My husband's friends have such a hard time with the fact that I'm funnier than me. And they always are coming up to me and saying jokes to me in this way that I'm like, you're not funny. It's okay. Stop trying. You're digging a hole for yourself. Just be fine with who you are. It's so annoying how not okay men are with not being the funny one in a relationship. And men, no offense, you guys, are not that funny. And then she gets into wardrobe, the way women dress on stage. And you and I both related to this. She really desexualizes herself in the way she dresses for her early stand-up career she said she wore a lot of baggy clothes she wore her hair and two little buns and she says her big regret is wearing heels on her first show and she's like I watch women get dressed up and wear these tight dresses and huge heels for their specials and it's like I see you at the cellar you've never worn that before the one thing I'll disagree with her though is she's like when men do late night sets and when men do their specials they just dress grubby no they wear suits they wear suits on the late night shows and I always look and go why the fuck are you wearing that suit it looks insane it literally looks insane to put on a tie to do dick jokes to have to rent a suit to get up on tv for the first time and be like so I have 17 roommates they look like they're gonna go on the titanic <laughs> I'm like why are you dressed like that it's silly there's a medium I think that you should dress up a little bit have some respect for the fact that you're recording something important but also make sure you're comfortable enough that you don't forget your jokes yeah and then she gets into how many men have come up to her and said something along the lines of so this is your hook this is your thing right about her being pregnant or 
It's so easy for you to be an Asian woman doing stand up. <laughs> you're so lucky, Allie. Me, I'm just another white guy, but you're both a female and a minority. Yes, because historically, that has always been the winning combo for recognition and success in entertainment industry. And then she goes, in the world of stand up comedy, I felt an increasing amount of jealousy and resentment from certain white male comics for being a woman of color. I hear that line a lot. Me, I'm just another white guy. Here's the solution. Try being a funnier white guy. There are plenty of white guys out there like Jimmy Kimmel, John Mulaney, Nick Kroll. I mean, she writes a paragraph of very successful white men in comedy. And we've seen that to this day. The amount of guys that will be like, oh, so you guys came up with that clever little podcast idea. And that's why you're doing better than me. And it's like clever. Who do you know that's given you credit for being clever? No one's ever called me clever. But no, men are always like, oh, you still doing your little thing. Your little podcast thing. I guess I could have done a podcast if I wanted to be a hack. And it's like, well, you're living on a floor. So, yeah, I guess you're just a failure. And that's much more honorable. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. I hope to someday be as pathetic as you. Then we get into a chapter about Vietnam. She studied abroad in Vietnam when she was in college and really believes that studying abroad was one of her most valuable experiences. And I do think that that sounds really good. I never did it, but. I do think that she had a really valuable experience studying abroad and I think that she learned a lot and experienced a lot but she really is like it's the only way to learn about the world it's the only way to not become a boring idiot and I don't necessarily agree with that it's definitely cool and I think if you have the opportunity to do it why would you not I don't know the way she goes on and on about how like there was this one guy she dated in college who never went abroad and he came to visit her in Vietnam and he is just a idiot gym rat from hell who will never be anything. And I'm like, I don't think that that's because he didn't study abroad. I think he just sucks. I also think she doesn't take into the equation how personally impactful it was to go to the country that her mom was from and better understand her mother. Right. I feel like if I had spent a semester in Vietnam, it would definitely have been a cool experience. and I definitely would have seen things I've never seen otherwise and different lifestyles that I wouldn't have encountered but you don't have cousins there that you like developed a relationship yeah I don't think I would come home and be like I now understand my ancestry better in like a way that to my DNA and bones I feel more fulfilled (laughs) yeah a lot of this book is funny stories about guys she dated I don't know that any of them are particularly important except for that she loves a fucking gross ass loser I mean one thing about Ali Wong is the bitch is gross there's people who are like ah she's disgusting and we're all that disgusting and I'm like I'm not like you she fell in love with this guy because he was like picking his boogers and throwing them at people these are college students I was like I don't love that I don't I don't love that about him she goes no other woman on the program wanted him because he was disgusting (laughs) okay I love her she's so confident and like fucking weird she is so confident and weird and has not a problem with a single like no one is more well equipped to be a mother I feel like than her because she says she's grossed out by fluids but I don't think she is she like there's no way she loves a random fluid if something drips on her she's you know Cameron Diaz in Charlie's Angels when there's that uh, bird poo on the bumper of the car and she touches it and gives it a little lick and then she knows what bird it's from I feel like that's Ellie Wong (laughs) this chapter about a DJ she once went out with I thought it was going to be about how you just shouldn't date DJs, but it was actually about how you shouldn't date virgins. And I was like, I can't believe this one went from an Ashley chapter to a Claire chapter so quick. (laughs) (laughs) Literally, it concludes, so please don't ever have sex with a virgin man unless you yourself are a virgin. And if you have to do sex with another virgin, prepare to be wildly disappointed. She didn't have sex with him. So I don't really know that she even knows. Yeah. This one feels unexperienced. Allie, fuck a virgin and then come back and tell me how it went. Yeah, you're divorced now. Have new experiences. Then she gets into some more experiences with her first husband, I call him. How she thought she was scoring this 
awesome business school grad. And then it turns out he was like a spiritual guy. For her birthday, he got her a piece of paper where he said, write your goals down. And then she wrote them down and he said, and it shall be. And she was like, what the fuck kind of magic trick was that? I wanted a bracelet. It's funny to me when she like goes back and forth. She's very perfectly skeptically spiritual. And I really like that. She's like, maybe it was that he had me write down my goals and make a wish on an envelope. And maybe it was that I worked really hard. And that's why I got my late night set. And then she later does ayahuasca and learns self-love. And she's like, that's probably what cured my rosacea or the antibiotics. (laughs) She tells this story. In 2011, I got invited to The Tonight Show to perform my very first stand-up set on late night TV. So that is a really fucking big deal. And back in the day, there used to be this idea that you could do a late night set and then turn it into a sitcom. It was kind of the road to success. Her show was on the same day as her ex-husband's Harvard Business School graduation. She says, I've missed many friends' weddings, baby showers, and bachelorette parties, but I'm very proud to say that I was smart enough not to miss your father's Harvard Business School graduation. I think I would have missed it. I think it's crazy that she didn't miss it because a graduation, that's just the party. People miss their own graduations. That doesn't stop you from having the diploma. But if you don't go to the late night set, there is no late night set. I kind of was like, I don't know, Allie. That feels crazy. I mean, it obviously didn't matter. I guess the long-term payment was like, I didn't go to my late night set for your graduation. Now you quit your job and come on the road with me. So then she has a full discussion about why they're perfect for each other. And one of them is she says they're the exact same amount of Asian. And she talks about the difference between the West Coast and East Coast Asians, how West Coast Asians tend to feel much more comfortable with their Asian-ness because there's just so many of them in the places they grow up. So it's not as big of a deal, whereas she feels like the East Coast Asians are not as evolved in their ethnic identity. That was the result of growing up around predominantly white people. They tend to be a little more ashamed of their race, overly excited to assimilate, and late in finding their place in Asian American community. I also refer to these men as lacrosse Asians. So she says when she met her husband, he was a little bit lacrosse Asian-y. But then, you know, she helped him. She got him really into food. He was a vegan when she met him. And she was like, like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Eat some fucking pork. We're going to go get good ramen. And then at the same time, he helped her with spirituality and took on her first ayahuasca journey and really made her stop and reflect and think and breathe. I don't want to like insert myself into her experience, but I find her just so relatable. And this reminded me a lot of what I'm looking for in terms of cultural versus religious Judaism because I feel like there is so much secondhand that you can cut out if you are dating someone who has the same or similar Jewish experiences as you but I don't want to be I'm not religious yeah and I think it is such a common thing in subcultures to be like all right who is the person that gets what I'm talking about and feels what I'm talking about but isn't gonna make me be more than what I am Mm -hmm. she talks about this ayahuasca experience she has (laughs) where she takes the ayahuasca and then her vision is she meets a clone of herself and they 69 and she's like wow that woman is so beautiful and she falls in love and that's where she finds self-love she also says the hardest thing that I've ever dealt with in my life was my father's death and my miscarriage and she says without my husband he's the one who made me take time out of my life to process that grief and the second ayahuasca trip she went on she says she processed a lot of the grief about her father and if her husband hadn't made her do that she's like I think I would have been a worse version of myself and I would still be sitting in a lot of that pain. And she just gives him a lot of credit for meeting her where she lives and helping her evolve. And it is so sad they didn't work out. I have to know what happened. I feel so fucked in the head that this, if I didn't know they were getting a divorce, I would have been like, well, this is a perfect relationship. What else could you want from these two people? Exactly. But I guess, I don't know that they changed. The circumstance changed. But she does say at the end that they go to therapy every week and it's because they have tiny little fights about 
cleaning and stuff and it's just easier to go to therapy and she just says like they laugh so much together and he plucks the gray hairs out of her head and he always smiles and says I really love doing this it makes me look forward to us growing old together no when cars pick us up to go to the airport drivers who don't know who I am will often call daddy Mr. Wong they engage with him mostly ask him the best way to go to the airport and look to him for instructions on what to do with the luggage the same happens at hotels and restaurants people who don't know who I am always assume I took his last name and it never bothers your father. He always says afterward that he's proud to be Mr. Wong. And whenever he does, I feel so lucky that I trapped him. I can't take it. I really need them to get back together and say it was a mistake. They're lying. They're tricking us. So then she has a chapter dedicated to her mom where she talks about being quite hard on her mom and how they had a complicated relationship growing up. But in having children herself, she really learns to appreciate what her mom was to her and how just trying your best is the most you can do so it helps her really appreciate her own mother a lot more and I think it was a really sweet reconciliation based on uh, this French book that she read called bringing up baby that's all about giving your kids whole grains and like blah, 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 organic shit and her friend is like yeah the minute you have a baby you're gonna realize how fucking hard it is to not feed them mac and cheese and she's like the minute I had a baby it was fucking hard not to feed them mac and cheese she's like maybe it'd be easier in France where nobody's eating mac and cheese but if you take your kid to the playground and someone else has goldfish your kid is now gonna become like the beggar looking for goldfish and the other parents will be like you get your own so she gave up she also describes how disgusting it is to have babies she's like talking about her first outing after her second kid and she's leaking milk she's leaking after birth her kid is puking her baby's shitting everything is disgusting <laughs> i don't know it just sounds disgusting i guess it's worth it but yeah and so she says when she had these babies her mom that she had this tough relationship with came and helped her out everybody wants to come and hold the baby when they're sleeping but nobody needs to be holding the baby when they're sleeping it's all the other time that you need to be holding the baby her mom came and helped out and she says sure she continued to give me unsolicited advice she kept telling me to give the baby a bottle of formula instead of breastfeeding. She told me I was too uptight about the baby looking at TV and showed Mari unofficial YouTube boss baby videos that I specifically asked her not to. She called my house a dirty hippie commune. She constantly criticized my spending habits and questioned every purchase and meal order. But she was there for me. So I just didn't care anymore. It made me realize that the most important part of parenting relationships, pretty much anything, is actually being there. I really love that. And she goes, my mom is never the type to write me long letters or birthday cards. We never got many petties together. She never gave me a locket with her picture in it. But she sent me to private school from kindergarten through 12th grade. She's still there for me. She will always be there for me as long as she's able. That's a great mom. And she could give two fucks about that French parenting book. That's very sweet. So then we have a chapter dedicated to her siblings, mostly focused on her brother, Andrew. She has two older sisters and one older brother, and they are significantly older than her by like 10 to 15 years. Which explains, I think, a lot why she is the way she is. And she says so much of who she was as a child was trying to be older and wanting to hang out with the older people and feeling like she was 10 years ahead of everybody. And I do think that is a personality where you're always like trying to impress people that are above you and thinking you don't fit in with the people below you. When the people below you are just like your classmates. Yeah, so her brother, Andrew, is... A hoarder, I think. <laughs> he lived at home until 35 and sells stuff on eBay. Her older sister went to law school and then became a doctor and now is a stay-at-home mom. And then her other sister, I don't know what she does for work, but she's a lesbian. Maybe she does that for work. Good for her. <laughs> Lesbians call in. Is there a living to be made there? <laughs> I feel like this chapter waffles. I thought it was going to be just like purely admiration. She talks about her brother introducing her to cool music and Eddie Murphy. And then... It goes into 
their failures and how the fact that they were failures made it okay for her to be creative and like a failure as well. She says about her brother, he allowed all of his siblings to fail because he had failed so frequently and so hugely. When you're the only son, there's a ton of pressure to be something great. And all that pressure turned him into a super fucking weird, crazy diamond. That doesn't read like a compliment. So her sister, Julia, went to Harvard Law School, but for only one year and then dropped out. And that was a huge shame for Julia. I don't know how her family felt. And she's like going through what all of her siblings had been through. And she's like, so by the time I showed up as an accident many years later, 10 to 15 years later, there was not a lot of expectations for me. <laughs> but then when she's naming the failure, she's like, you know, my sister dropped out of law school. This one became a lesbian. My brother was manic depressive. He was dropping out of school. My sister went hiking, fell in a well. They had to helicopter her out after 48 hours of her being stuck there. She almost lost her leg. She got a really bad surgery that got infected from it. And they, they almost had to amputate the whole leg. So she was like, by the time I was born, they were just happy I had all my limbs. And, you know, I kept on trucking. I was like, what the fuck happened in that well? What was that you just said to me about your sister getting trapped in a literal well? I would love a book, a chapter even from the sister. Tell me about the well. This whole book reminds me of in fourth grade, my teacher had this like story time prompt book where she would read a crazy story and you would pick one sentence to be the first sentence of the story you wrote. Sure. And I feel like this book, I'm like, okay, that memoir. Give me your sister's well memoir. Give me your brother's hoarder memoir. We'll get to her husband's father later. I'm like, I need that memoir. Okay, so then she gets into the questions she's asked as a Asian female stand-up comedian and how they're all boring. And then she says the questions she wished she'd been asked, and she doesn't answer them. So that is tough. Here are some questions that she would like to be asked if any of you guys meet Ali Wong and are looking for a way to engage her. How do you overcome failure? How do you write a good joke? How do you learn to live life on the road? How do you choose who to collaborate with? How do you stay safe? I actually know how she stays safe. She's always putting her keys between her fingers. Yeah, she used to like sleep with her keys between her fingers. I'm kind of like, I don't know, Allie, you're five feet flat. I could take you with the keys. <laughs> I got keys too, bitch. <laughs> and then she talks about the other Asians in Hollywood and security in her skill and her place, I think, and how she's lucky to have come up in a time when there isn't just one role. Can I say one thing that I think is really interesting that I kind of wish she had written about? She was quite successful. Not successful, but she was pretty regularly booking TV shows. Yeah, she casually mentions that like it wasn't a big deal. She's like, I was living in New York, broke as hell, and I had a show on, it wasn't Bones, but it was Bones-esque. Yeah, and she was also in that Christian Slater show where they used to break in, it was like a security company. I watched that. I don't remember why, but I... You have a couple years where you just, if it was on, you were watching it. I know. She also has a lot of respect for the way that her mom came to the United States having like no connections and no understanding of how anything worked versus her current experience in Hollywood. And she's like, yeah, it's nice that there is a space and representation and it's not great, but we're working on it. It's interesting because I feel like this is a book by an Asian American for her Asian American daughters. And she really talks about like how much she loves being Asian in a way that is not for me as a white person. She's not trying to like prove it to me. She's just like, here's some cool things about us. And she's like, I love that my parents taught me to be frugal, which we talk about later. We're like, okay, Allie, you are fucking rich. You don't have to steal the hand soap from the hotel anymore. Get yeah. a grip. And I love the bluntness because, you know, my family's been roasting me my whole life because that's just how they talk. And then I get on stage and you can't hurt me by bombing because I've already experienced it. I love that my family taught me to be refreshingly rude and honest. 
It also toughened me up and prepared me for bombing and criticism. People like to praise Asian Americans as the model minority for their strong work ethic and good behavior. My Vietnamese mother did not give me either, but she made me cheap, tough, and salty like a steak from Sizzler. And then she's like giving advice to people in the entertainment industry, be it you a woman, be you an Asian American, be you whoever. She says, my last piece of advice would be to focus not on the result, but instead the process and the journey. Again, Asian people love predictable outcomes, but to succeed in a creative passion, you really need to love it. And if you love it and are great at it and passionate about constantly becoming better at it, you will find success no matter what. If not, you can always be a professional hoarder like your Uncle Andrew. (laughs) Does she hate Andrew? I don't know. I wonder if he has a good sense of humor about being a kook. But to read this versus Jennifer Grey, I'm like, yeah, this is what we were missing from her. This is why she didn't become successful. If you read Ali Wong's book, you come away knowing one thing for fucking sure, and it's that she loves stand-up and that she'll do anything to get better at it and that that is the craft. And actually, we talked to Fumi after this about the way she's just been working on her hour for like 30 people and she loves it. And I don't know. I do believe her, but it's so different than how – like this is why Jennifer Grey didn't succeed because she didn't really love it. She did not love it at all. It was not about the craft for her. No, it was about proving to her dad that she could and she could. And also about not having to ever get a day job. True. Okay, she has a chapter about getting married. This was filler. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I will say we are now at the part of the book where she was like, what else can I throw at this book to kind of fill the space? I enjoyed hearing about her wedding. I don't think it was good advice for all weddings. Yeah. I'm just like, do what you want. And I like that is the message that I take from it is like there is no standard traditional way to have a wedding, even though weddings are so steeped in tradition. Do the thing that makes you the happiest, because if it is a day to celebrate you and your love, she has one line like a wedding is not a marriage. And it's like, yeah, your wedding isn't your marriage. She also is is like there's so many people who spend a ton of money on their weddings and they get divorced and regret it. And I'm like, well, I guess at least you don't have that regret. So I I agree with that. Do what you want to do. Do whatever you think best represents your love and however you want to celebrate but like she's like there's no one way to do it do it my way and you're like okay Allie she says I was 28 when your father proposed and by then all of my very best friends had gotten married what you were a comedian in New York City at 28 years old when people I knew got married I would have been like oh my god are you pregnant (laughs) they got married at City Hall and then went to a Chinese buffet afterwards that sounds fun though she wore a dress that she got from like eBay that she had found earlier she also does this thing where she told him she wanted a jade engagement ring. And then when he went to go buy it, after she was like, when are you going to propose? Go propose now. He went to go buy it. And the guy was like, listen, you just can't wear a jade stone every day. It'll, it's too soft of a stone. So he had her a custom one made with an Art Deco theme and a diamond. And when Ali opened it, she was so happy. And she's like, I had actually already decided I did want a diamond instead of a jade one. But I didn't tell him. I just wanted him to figure it out on his own. Okay. And I'm like, hey, bitch, I'm right. I, that's a real Claire move to be like, I told you one thing, but I wanted another thing. And you were supposed to be able to figure that out. <laughs> These filler chapters are so hard because you're like, you know, they're not even passionate about it. And that's why they suck. She talks about how she hates destination weddings because it's unfair to make your whole wedding party spend their whole weekend on you. But how your bachelorette party should be at Disney World or Disneyland because she's like I live in LA everyone has a connection at Disneyland you can just get super high and go for free and I'm like this is so specific to you being a person who works in the entertainment industry with like Disney affiliates okay you can't be like destination weddings are too expensive make your bachelorette party Disneyland you have to be like destination weddings are too expensive and Disneyland is too expensive unless you are me specifically and then her final chapter is wild child which is about how awful she was as a teenager to her mom. And she's like, if karma is real, you guys are going to be awful to me. But if I go, here's some of the crazy shit I did. And this is where it really devolves. It's just a listicle of everything she did, which is like, I dated older guys. I drank beer. I wore a scarf wrap shirt with no bra. And it sounds hot. And the rest of the chapter is her going back through those and explaining them in more detail. And I'm like, no, I got, I got it from the bullet points. 
That's fine. Sounds like you had fun. But she dips back into her relationship with her mom and talks about how she always felt neglected and like her mom wasn't there for her the way some other white moms were. And then she's like, it wasn't until I saw Lady Bird and realized that white chicks have issues with their mothers too. Yes, it took me that long to realize it. So all I can do right now is hope that our relationship, especially when you two are teenagers, will be better than mine with my mom. We get along great now that I have kids, but those early years were really painful. As long as you don't get maimed or contract life-threatening STDs, I accept that some shit is going to go down. And then the final chapter is a letter from her husband to the girls. And okay, it's so interesting. Basically, it goes through and it explains his upbringing, which is his dad was named Dr. Fab and he invented these. It's those sticky things that you would throw at the wall and then they would like backflip down the wall. The wacky wall walker, a, a sticker rubber octopus toy over from Japan and sold more than 200 million of them. He even had the Dr. Fab show, which was a kid's show where he just like interviewed toys. He got to go on late night with Conan O'Brien and the Today Show. So that was cool. That's how he was raised. So he was raised with a ton of money outside of D.C. And that's why they had to get the prenup because he had so much money. And I guess that's how he was able to get a diamond ring for her, even though he was living in a closet. Yeah. And just a business school student. And then he talks about how having a famous parent does mean there's less time for you. But what Allie's doing is so important. And then he talks about his experience of meeting Allie. And he's like, when I saw her do stand up the first time, I never laughed so hard from the minute I saw her. I said, I want to, how do I get to know a woman like that? And he talks about his experience of now getting to see her through the eyes of her fans and how powerful it is and how proud he is and how, you know, it's hard to have someone go up there and talk about your personal life, but they have a mutual respect and he runs, she runs her jokes by him first. And if something's too far, he asks her to change it and she respects that. What happened? And then if yeah, and then he talks about his decision to quit his job because even though he was like a vice president of product managing at GoodRx, which is a huge company. Yeah. I guess he was like, it just made financial sense for me to get on the road with you guys. And whenever I feel insecure about that, I have to think why, because this is the best thing for our family. It's great that I can go to every recital and I can pack every lunch and I can help out. And he's like, I love being there on her tour. And it's allowed me to say, what do I actually want to do with my life? And I, I just don't know what happened. But he does say, please know that you don't have to be famous. You don't have to go on your own tour someday. You don't have to have a show or a movie or a book unless that's what you want. But you do need to be a real person with a real heart who remembers where you came from. Everything in my life, including falling in love with your mother, led me to my greatest job yet, being your father. All my love, daddy. (laughs) Okay. Um, I will say when I was reading that final chapter by the dad, it was so beautiful and moving and everything I've ever, like everything you could want to hear from a man supporting you in your dreams and knowing that they are since divorced. I was crying on the L train. (laughs) Um, Ashley, final thoughts? I loved it. I think it was, you know... Not a great work of literature, but definitely like a nice read. And now let's welcome our guest, the hilarious comedian Fumi Abe. And I am so excited to sit here with actually one of my oldest comedy friends. Yay. Doing a comedian. He is hilarious and is just launched his own finance podcast, which I'm very interested in. But he's not financy. I'm not financy. But you have money. <laughs> you have some money. How much money do you money. have in your bank account right, right now? Right now. How much are you planning to turn it into with your Financial prowess. <laughs> Please welcome Fumi. Fumi Abe. Yeah. <laughs> Have you met Ali Wong? No, but I feel like I'm so close to meeting her because A, like within the Asian comedian scene, there's like, you know, a bunch of open micers, me, Ronnie Chang, and then like Ali Wong, Margaret's like the be- you know, the yeah. gods, you know? And I feel like I we're just so close and we've been in the same venues, but I've never actually met her. But I have been in contact with her opener, Shang Wang. And I'm like, maybe somehow we can meet. But no, I've never I've never met her. Okay, I have. Uh-huh. Like, you, you talked to her? Yeah, okay. Time? So this was right after her um, Baby Cobra came out. 
And she was doing, I used to run a show at UCB Franklin when I lived in LA with Sam J. And she was the headliner for that month. And this was like maybe three to six weeks after her special came out. Cause it was like right when I don't think anyone in the comedy scene, even her like really realized that she was like all of a sudden famous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like she is one of those Netflix special comedians that like the Netflix special turned her entire career upside down and she became like famous from it. It's like her and Tom Segura. So this special came out and we had already had her booked to headline our show. And I mean, she was just cool. We were emailing. She came and did it. I booked her like via Ali Wong at gmail.com, which she <laughs> no longer <laughs> whoa, whoa, answers. Whoa, whoa. I've checked. <laughs> <laughs> You can bleep that out, but <laughs> there's no response. <laughs> to me, at least. You guys try. <laughs> yeah, um, everybody email Allie. <laughs> anyway, so then she came. She did our show, and I had a set on that show because I didn't – I mean, it was like a show I was producing, so I didn't do a set every time. The show sold out in, like, a week as soon as we announced Whoa. the lineup. Like, it went crazy, and we were like, holy shit, is Allie Wong, like, huge Oh, you, got, you didn't know at that point? No. Yeah. I mean, we were really excited to have her because we are like, oh, this is a huge get because we loved her special. I didn't realize – it's one of those things – when you like think it's a cult classic and then you're like, Oh, everyone loved freaks and geeks. Like that's not Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. unique anymore. So we booked her. We were excited to have her. It sold out so hard. And we were like, wait a second. Was she cool? She was so nice. She like sat sat and talked to us for like half an hour after the show. We just like hung out in the green room and I'm like, Oh my God, is she incredible? Like she's the nicest person I've ever met in my life. I've been obsessed with her ever since. She was pregnant. No, she had the baby already. Yeah. So she filmed the special like, what was she like seven months pregnant right 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 and then but she had the baby before the special came out gotcha um but yeah so she just like had a baby at home and i think that she was like i'll just sit in this room and talk to these open micers because i have a babysitter right now (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know i wonder i I wonder how she is now because she's so famous and i feel like comedians do change when they i I, well she has a story in her memoir about opening and being so excited to open for some old guy and it's one of those things yes. in this story, and when you're an open micer and you meet someone famous who has everything you ever want, you cannot fathom why they're acting the way they're acting. And you're like, why wouldn't you want to do the meet and greet? Why wouldn't, like, the idea that people would have you pay to do a VIP meet and greet. Or I opened for somebody who didn't meet fans. He, like, met one off because he was a, it was t- a terminal ill person. And I was like, I can't even fathom not wanting to meet your fans. Aren't mm. you so grateful? But then you're like, oh, these people, like, they would have to spend eight hours a day. Like, when you're doing, when you're headlining every night, like, yeah, every night, yeah. every week, you're like, oh, you just get burnt out. You can't do it for 20 years. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, but I will say, so in this book, she names a couple of people, like, Shang Wang and Kevin Kamiya as her openers, and I know Shang Wang might have, like, blown up a little bit bigger than that now, maybe, like, opens for her. Does he still open for her? I think so. Because I know Kevin does still, so, like, I know she hasn't, like, Changed turned her back on her people. Yeah, that's crazy because this is what came out in 2018, 19 or something like yeah. that. So they've been her openers for like, yeah, three, four like years. a while. Now. Yeah, that's crazy. So what did you think of the book, Foom? Any? <laughs> I wrote some notes. Hold Good. On. Yeah, yeah let's hear. I'm interested in notes. your. By the way, this is my first. I've never read a celebrity memoir. This is my first one. What'd you think? I, I enjoyed it. And it was crazy because I've been listening to your other ones. And like, it seems that you guys have like a very high standard. So you don't enjoy a lot of them. <laughs> and so I was, as, I, as I was enjoying this one, I was like, oh, I wonder if they're going to like roast this book. And I'm just going to be like the weirdo who's going to like it. But no. I, I enjoyed it. Like, I thought it was funny. There's a lot of like, laugh out moments. Like, there's a lot of heart. I thought the ending was like, I don't know. It felt like a little found in, to be honest. But like. That, it was a 
classic. I, re- I had eight good chapters in me and now I've got yes. a page number to hit and yes. I couldn't. So I called in my husband. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's no judgment there because there was like some solid chapters in between. But, it like, ends for sure. abruptly. Yeah. 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 I would, I mean, you always know when you get into listicle mode that you're like, Oh, this person has a run of the things to say when she had that graph for how you could tell a good Asian restaurant from a bad one. Oh, the I best. Like, I was like, we're very <laughs> close to Google image searching. She's about to tell you what's in her bag, but that's why I'm happy. It was only 215 pages. Cause a lot of people would have said, well, I have to hit 280. So we're going to do 17 more listicles. Mm. Can I say something? I actually think that this book could have been stretched a little more. There were certain chapters that felt like she was just like rapid fire, like running through ideas that all pertain to a certain topic. And that is like, honestly, my only criticism of the book is that I'm like, I do feel like some of these could have been like delved into a little bit harder. But like that also feels like who she is to me as someone who's like, all right, every idea I have ready, go. Now we're done. Well, it was, it was interesting reading it as a comedian because we were talking about this earlier, but she does mention a lot of places that we've all frequented, like Caravan of Dreams, where like it's like a vegan open mic. That before. <laughs> but it's interesting because she's like a generation above us, right? Like she's a little older than us. And so some of the things she says, like, I think there is a part where she says like, you know, if, if you want to make it, like, you know, it's just about working hard. And, like, I don't know. Just, like, I think she's still a true believer in, like, you got to get up five times a day. Like, I think – I don't remember her exact words. She, nine. She said she was getting up nine times a night. And even I, a, a New York born and bred, I was like – I don't know how it's possible unless you're at the cellar or something. Social media stand-up comedy was still, like, but a glimmer in our eyes when yes. this book came out. Yes. And so I do think a lot of these theories – I think that some of them I still really – believe in but Mm -hmm. I think that she's still a generation above us in that like social media wasn't even really a factor in coming up in stand-up right like you could have social media but it wasn't gonna like I think it was like Rob Delaney maybe was like at the time but it's weird because this book is not that old but it in those moments it felt old because right. I was like, oh, you don't even really know about like TikTok comedians. <laughs> or like, even when she's talking about how important it is to do the tonight show. That yes, that's where you yes. get the sitcom idea it's like, from. Oh my God. I'm like, baby, I wish late night debut. You've had a late night show. I have had a late night, yeah. Would you have skipped that for your partner's college graduation? Oh. No, I would still do it. Yeah, me too. I would me still too. do it. I, it still means a lot to us. It's still know? that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. Is like even though I know it's not because she thought that this was gonna make or break her career, right, I right, don't right. even think it would impact my career in any way except for making me like more bookable to stand up purists yeah i couldn't even find it on youtube i don't even know where it is she skipped it oh, to, she do, skipped it. Oh, to right. go to the graduation i still wouldn't skip it to go to someone's graduation i would have been like harvard everyone's gone to harvard i th- also like i didn't know anything about her family and it's crazy that like she's the youngest by far and it's like very clear why she became a comedian because it was very evident that her parents like didn't give a fuck about her mm-hmm. like there was that one part where like she didn't memorize her piano recital song or whatever and she played one note and left and her dad didn't give a fuck that's like kind of sad to me is insane that's so sad the way that i used to sob after piano lessons every single week and my parents said when you're in third grade you can quit and i i cried every single week until third grade (laughs) and i would just cry and practice piano and my teacher would scream at me and say i can tell you haven't been practicing for an hour a day and i'd be like of course i haven't i'm a kid oh my god what do we think about like her family they're like i don't want to use the word crazy but like her uncle andrew like did okay. she never talks about this shit? they are eclectic in a way that i don't feel like is represented in mainstream media in any way no and it's like she's got a, a gay sister this like hippie brother yeah and then like like this, a hot gay sister oh she hot 
I've no she idea. talks about how her sister was like the tallest and most beautiful of the bunch. Is, this, is the volleyball one? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, because later on, um, she just described her as like somebody who like never shaved any hair on her body or something like <laughs> and that. And so like, Fumi with his patriarchy, <laughs> with his patriarchal lens was like, well, that can't be hot. That can't be hot. There's no way that that's hot. Cancel me. Well, what about when she's talking about her other sister who got into Harvard Law School, dropped out, ended up getting her MD, and then very quickly stopped being a doctor? That's a yeah. lot of years yeah. in school. I think she grew up kind of wealthy. Her dad was an anesthesiologist and her, I in the Bay school. Area. Yes, her school is 40K a year. So this is, no, this is no joke. So here's the thing. This is another one that I mean is this chapter about her family like felt like everything just like splatted onto the page. And I liked it. Like I like Ali Wong and I feel like it is true to her voice. But I also was like, go further. Tell me what it was like and like the like if there was like moments where the wheels were turning in your head to be like okay my older siblings like we're because she talks about growing up in like a very asian community so i mean we know what like stereotypical asian families look like on television mm-hmm, like uh, mm-hmm. that's i mean fresh off the boat is like like pretty much what we have in terms of like representation right 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 so i am like explain to me what it was like watching your family not live up to those expectations and did those expectations exist in your community or was this like standard and you're like yeah i don't know i don't think it's standard it doesn't but feel, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't feel standard in any but family no of course but i think there must be like some sort of like because there's got to be a reason why. Because that, that to me was the most interesting part of the book because she never talks about it. But there must be a reason why she's not talking about it on stage. Or like, again, this is already a sitcom itself. Yeah. But she must have some sort of like... She must be trying to sell it. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think maybe her... I'm guessing her siblings asked her not to really go into it. But That's she what goes... I, I mean, okay, I'll tell you where I feel like there's like almost a tiny bit of like... Not even resentment, but there is some conflicting emotion there because she was like, okay... I actually love that my family is like this. She really goes in on Andrew, who's her brother, who's like a hoarder. Yeah. And is like manic depressive and has like a lot of unexpected traits. And then at the end, she's like, I love that he was like this because it gave like the fact that he was such a failure gave me the opportunity to fail. And I'm yeah. like, that is mean. <laughs> I have to That's an say, insane takeaway. Something <laughs> I really loved about her book is we have a hard time with the way that women talk about their own mothers. Mm. I like that Ali Wong had that. Um, ability to repair the relationship with her mom and she was able to look back and be like you know she was doing her best I'm doing my best I appreciate who who she is and how she shows up for me now I love who she is with the brother chapter even though she kind of ties it up and is like and I'm so grateful for him I was like I can't imagine reading this as him though because it it's not obvious that he's go- she's going to be appreciative. It doesn't I mean, tie she up. mentions mm. that he has a kid now. She does not mention, like, where he stands in that kid's life. She, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Like, all you know is that he has a daughter now, and the daughter wanted a dog, so he just, like, showed up with, with a dog, <laughs> even though his wife or ex-wife, I don't even know if they're still together, was like, don't bring a dog to my house. Right, and then, like, fought the raccoon or whatever. Yeah, yeah. and he <laughs> lost an eyeball yeah, to a yeah. raccoon. Oh, God. I do wonder, though, she... She talks about how dirty she was on stage. I was kind of shocked at how dirty she was on stage. Oh, I was, yeah. The fact that she was showing her asshole. Yes, yes. I was thinking about that. Like, well, because her, her punchline was, what's cracking? Because she would show <laughs> her fucking ass on stage. And she that's how she got her husband, which is hilarious. Two things. One, I feel like you guys would know this more than me, but I feel like it's rare for like, I never f- hear my female comedian friends talk about like, I crushed 
and then I got this hot guy after. Right. But I think the general understanding is that, like, men are, like, threatened by yes. humor and women with opinions. I mean, my, so, like, 100% majority is that yeah. I have gone on a date with every single fucking man in New York City who has tried stand-up twice and thinks oh, that he God. could go back to it later when he has a little bit more free time. <laughs> I, I also feel like that kind of humor, I, I I mean, we weren't doing comedy in 2007 in New York City, but, like, I feel like no one is doing that, like, that kind of physical comedy. I couldn't, I, I also, I wasn't even sure what the joke was, really. <laughs> I was just I like, didn't get it, because she said she was singing Row, 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 Row Boat, and then yeah, she I didn't shows get her it at, ass. But I don't think she it. even thought it was a good joke. I think she was like, it was crazy that I showed my ass, though. I mean, <laughs> the way that she talks about, like, bodily functions openly, oh I'm just like. Oh, my God. She's too good at describing yeah. diarrhea. Like, she said frothy, well, and I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about, and that's fucking disgusting. I <laughs> often say, like, her second special, where she talks about what it was like to give birth, I'm like, th- there's a reason women don't share stories like this, and it's because <laughs> now I won't have children, and it's Ali Wong's fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't actually know what you're getting into because nobody sane would take that on. Yeah, she's pretty, like, comfortable with her body. There was, like, a chapter about her doing um, ayahuasca. And yes. And... Only a woman could write that. I feel like if a guy wrote that, it would be so disorienting. <laughs> like, he would yeah. lose the book deal immediately. Someone's like, yep, I sucked my own dick. And now I love my dad. I don't know, man. That's one of Marilyn Manson's top <laughs> rumors. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. But I feel like this kind of stuff, I really admire that she wrote it because it feels like Miley Cyrus's twerking era to me. In order to, like, break out of her Disney self, she had to, like, go and be like a little bit more extreme than she actually is. Mm. And I don't even think that that era was that extreme, but it was much more extreme than Disney Miley. And then she could like settle back into who she is. And then people wouldn't be like, why does Miley smoke weed now? This is so crazy because they're like, Oh, at least she's come back from that. And I feel like this for all women is like Miley's twerk era in that like women are only allowed to talk about a certain level of existing in our bodies and so when you say, like, wild shit, it pushes the envelope a little further, and then we can, like, settle back a little bit oh, behind that. Because I don't want to talk about this, but I'm happy that someone has so that now I can, like, publicly <laughs> be like, yeah, I have thrown up. <laughs> I've done it. I have. Well, what I found really interesting is when she talks about starting stand-up and wearing like purposely baggy clothes to desexualize herself because that was my exact experience Same. is I went in I never did sex jokes when I started mm. I wore like the baggiest clothes because I did everything I could to desexualize myself to be taken seriously and then I remember two years in watching girls who were starting the week before getting spots because they were hooking up with guys and I was like wow if I have one regret <laughs> it Wait, was trying to earn this shit because Claire when I first met you we were at this bar open mic oh 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 you I- had just gotten your hair done and your hair was gorgeous and I'm like what is this woman doing at the shitty open mic? I was so confused. I had just w- gotten headshots done that day. I okay. was just thinking about that. It was, um, what was it, like Phoenix Rising or something? Yeah, like on oh 13th my God. Street. On 13th Street. There were all these like fucking bummy ass looking comedian dudes and this like really like preppy looking like girl with a beautiful hair on That's the when back when I was blonde too. It's because I had gotten headshots done that day. Yes. Because I was four and a half weeks into comedy and I was like, well, gotta get these headshots. Coming, uh, they're coming and knocking. Hollywood's coming any day. It's been... Eight years. Now. Hollywood has not come back. <laughs> Ashley just <laughs> hit herself in the face with her own mic at the oh preposterity. The preposterity. Okay, here's the thing that makes me laugh so much about it is because those headshots became like unusable once you became an actual stand up comedian, which is like someone with brown hair. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the one thing that I wish she had put in this book that she didn't have is she has this whole section where she talks about 
how she hates being asked what's it like being a woman in comedy what's it like being an asian american in comedy and she's like here's some questions i'd rather be asked and i was like those are great questions could you answer them now that yes. you have the opportunity and one of the questions i had is her joke writing her, the, her joke writing method i think i've heard either from her or from you guys not you guys but ashley I've heard from somewhere that she doesn't ever write jokes. She goes out and kind of just like improvs and then whatever works sticks. sticks. Mm -hmm. But that's very interesting when you look at her first special, which was so like structured. Yeah. The structure yeah, yeah. of her first special is identical to that of like a sitcom like Seinfeld or even I'd say Curb Your Enthusiasm where there's three separate strands that get braided together to come to the conclusion at the end where then all three elements that have been interweaved like collide to make a perfect joke like a perfect mm. a plot b plot c plot exactly conclusion and that you can't um so i want to be like okay so when are you writing these down i wonder if she's listening back every day and writing down and then she just doesn't ever she like ad libs and then listens back and transcribes whatever gets a pop or is she just always having them swirling in her head and kind of feels yeah. it out i mean i know that in la like most recently i know she's been doing these secret shows at the improv so if you live in la go check her out yeah, if, if, it says, if, it's, if it says if it's secret headliner it's usually ali wong and she just does an hour. And like I, I think she's just like fucking around, you know? Yeah. And she does it purposely in the smaller room at the improv. So it's only like 30, 40 people. And like I think if she bombs, everybody paid like 10 bucks anyway, so it doesn't really matter. And that's know? the dream. Can I tell you? That's like the dream level of success that you can – my fantasy when I think of myself as an old person is that I get to go do those new joke Tuesdays at the cellar like the, with the fat cat. Oh, the fat cat, yeah. That to me is the dream where people are just sitting on couches, hanging out. I like to be able to look in people's eyes. I don't even yeah. want to do a theater. I don't want to do a special. I just want to have a room with 50 people who are like two drinks in and down for a good time. No cell <laughs> and phones. And you can just like <laughs> hang out and have mm -hmm. fun and it's nice. And I feel like, and then I feel like when you're at those types of shows, if you bomb, people don't leave that show being like, Claire isn't funny. They right, leave right. that show being like, oh, I like watched a comedian stuff. I admire workout new material yeah, yeah. that didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what did you think about the part where she's talking about like even after she's successful, she she's still like sort of cheap and like stingy, mm -hmm. and like she steals uh, you know slippers from the hotel and stuff like that. You know, you guys have seen some success. Is this is this relatable, or do you feel like the second? you get some sort of deal and you're making like half a mil, you're just like gone. You're, oh, you're, you're driving okay. a fucking Bugatti. Like you're, you know. As I soon as I started <laughs> making like $20 an hour, I was like, am I the richest person in the world? <laughs> <laughs> I am making on this podcast the exact same amount of money almost as I was making at my admin job. And what? at my admin job, I was saving 50%. And on the podcast salary, I bought myself a Cartier watch. I feel like... <laughs> you think it's because comedy is like fun money? It yes, feels like it feels so different. And I think the mindset change for me is when I was working my day job, it was always with the hope that one day I could quit this job. And my game plan was... I'll fund be I'll save enough money that I could fund a year where I just go at it 100% and yeah. the year my plan was like when I turn 30 I'll quit and I'll just give myself 365 days to see if I can make it happen and if not I have to fucking admit defeat because at that point I'll be 31 I'll have done it full time for a full year and oh, I'll have been working fuck. at it for a decade almost and if, yeah. it, if I can't make a living off of this then I have to just find a new career or right 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 end it all and luckily I was able to quit beforehand and then interestingly enough and this is for anyone out there looking for their passion I will say quitting I think was why I was able to make a living out of it. Mm -hmm. I don't think if I had waited at my job full time, I ever would have made the living first. So I'm glad that I was in a position where I felt like it was a do or die thing. But the comedy money is so different because I'm no longer in that mindset of like, well, I need to be saving half of this for the future so that ultimately I can do something fun later. Because I'm like, right, I'm doing right, it fun right. now. Yeah, and yeah, I kind of yeah, went yeah, overboard yeah, yeah. this year because doubly, not only was I, I wasn't saving at the rate I used to save, but also 
I've been predicting that I would be burning through all my savings and hit zero. Yeah. So the fact that I never really had to dip into my savings this year, I was like, everything's free. Yeah. Company <laughs> money does feel like fun. I, I, I felt like I, so I had like a regular job for a long time and then I was like running for TV for like a year and a half and I was making like pretty good money. But like I was so, I think I still had sort of that like scarcity mentality. It was like, oh, this isn't going to last. So like I had a really hard time trying to buy that Cartier watch or whatever yeah. it is. And I think truly like, I mean, I have a joke about this, but like I, I, the only thing I started doing is like, I just started buying like the, the more expensive rice at the grocery <laughs> store. It's like the one's like more 10, more, 10 more dollars or whatever. You know? Wow. There you go. Yeah. Oh, but that's it's like, like a lot more expensive for rice. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say like, how much rice. <laughs> it's the good kind. It's the good kind. Um, um, what I was going to say about her, money saving chapter i guess i kind of don't like when rich people write about being frugal in certain places because it feels mm. almost costumey to be like on this i don't spend a lot of money and then you like look at their instagram and you're like all right well you were at a resort last week right, so right, 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 the right. fact that you're like stealing slippers from the resort they're charging that to your room right. <laughs> <laughs> well i found interesting that in her book she does not mention that her husband quit his job to support her full-time she talks about the fact that he didn't do that. And then in his addendum, he's like, and you know, I finally realized I needed to be for all of us to be happy. I was going to let your mom be the full-time breadwinner. And I'm like, I wonder why she didn't mention that. I wonder if it was a temporal thing. Like he wrote his chapter later. Yeah. Mm. Or if it, it was something she just didn't want to address. Is that in the Justin chapter at the mm-hmm. end? Oh, at the okay. end, he talks about quitting his job and f- touring with her right, full-time, right. which specifically she doesn't mention in her part, right? That right, is right, very right. interesting. Like, what did you think about reading this through the lens that it didn't work out? Because there's, there's even a chapter where she's like, we're doing couples therapy because it's cheaper than divorce. And I'm like, you're so rich, you did fucking both. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's before insane. she got the second book deal. Yeah, yeah, she was yeah, like, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. I could afford a divorce. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I now have Japanese toy money. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. It's insane. She, I do feel like we need a second book now. I kind of feel like she owes it. I think I've gotten in trouble for this on the internet before for saying that I think that certain couples like owe an explanation of their divorce. But I think to write and to make this much content about your marriage and how amazing and how amazing it is and to have people like covet this type of relationship and then not explain where it went wrong i need to know because did it go wrong based on like the fundamentals of what you guys were doing like this thing of like you can have it all ladies like is that literally not true or did it go Mm. wrong because like something specific in your guys's lives did you watch (laughs) her third netflix special no No. i have to watch it that one is i think that's my favorite one okay and she's still married in that one but you can tell it's not going perfect Ooh. because it's all about what it's like to be a successful woman in Hollywood and what does it mean to be a female billionaire or whatever the fuck she is. And she opens it by saying, like, you know, if you're a billionaire man, you date a supermodel. My friend is a, a billionaire comedian. Her boyfriend is a magician. And that's, that's like the <laughs> oh arc my God, of the whole which thing. Which one is, is like, that? It's just, the, whole, the whole thing is, like, what happens to a woman when she has a lot of money? And I think – this is my conjecture based on the special, but I think just that kind of success like really changes you. And like, yes, she has a family, but I think she, I don't know, maybe she's trying to explore herself sexually and stuff. And like, yeah. she, the whole thing is how she wants to fuck other guys. And like, she was on set filming and like this Iranian chef like touched her weird and she got super wet and like, but then her husband's all cool with it because she pays for everything. And um, and so that's how she ends it at the end. It's kind of like this book where it's like, but it's fine because right now he's at home because he's not even at the recording. And she ends it with being like, he's at home watching porn on the Wi-Fi that I pay for. Ha, ha, ha. And that's how it kind of ends. But after knowing that it didn't work out, it's like, is he really just watching porn? Or is is he just like maybe living in the back house or something? You know, like is something (laughs) happening? As honestly, as a woman, I remember when they split up, this fucked me up. Because for a lot of women comedians, I think she was the hope. 
Mm-hmm. She was the proof mm-hmm. that it could work. You could be successful. And they had, I think, the dream. I mean, my dream, which was she was so successful that her husband was able to be a stay-at-home dad, which if you're a successful comedian, you're on the road. You're shooting movies. You cannot be home as much as a normal parent who's even going to the office every day. And so you do kind of need someone there yeah. to go- pick up the slack in the other direction. And to yeah. find a man who's okay with you being a comedian in the first place is already so hard. And to find one who would be comfortable with you being successful feels nearly impossible and reading his chapter and me and Ashley are critical. The audience can attest. We will find the flaw. I had no flaws with what he was saying about Allie. Listening to the way he talked about her was all as a woman. I could dream of a husband describing my comedy. Like he felt so impressed by her when he talks about seeing her do comedy for the first time. And he's like, my whole body was shaking with laughter. He goes, I've never laughed as hard as I've ever laughed in my life watching her do stand up." And he talks about selling posters and, when he can see the way that she has impacted people's lives and he's like, they come up to me and it's so important to them. Like, I just feel like she's doing this higher calling and I'm so proud of her. And he's talking to her daughters and he's talking about coming terms and being comfortable with him Mm -hmm. talking about her, talking about him on stage. And he's like, you know, sometimes it sucks and sometimes she makes fun of me and it definitely hurts a bit, but it also makes me evaluate. Why does that hurt? I'm just doing like quitting my job was the best thing for our family. So what do I have to change about my external social ideas of what a man does that makes me not feel ashamed when she says my husband doesn't work mm. and it just was like all you could hope for and then to find out that they didn't make it you're like fuck yeah <laughs> then wh- what hope is there I for know. anybody well, that's what i mean is like was it like the structure of their relationship and is that structure impossible or was it like she cheated on him yeah yeah i mean it's, it's funny you mentioned julia because she's the one who told me like she her she has this theory where it's like every successful like male comedian has like a very supportive woman mm-hmm. you know backing his career and she was like i just don't know if that's the case for women you well, know I mean, like, and she was sort of the, literally she not. was the only example mac was selling merch our merch at our live show like yeah i feel like i also have with my partner what Allie had with hers and I need to be like well what went wrong for you (laughs) (laughs) I'm like I guess I'm very lucky and that I'll never be as successful as Allie Wong and in many ways that is a blessing yeah her talking about being a woman and stand up in general and like being amongst so many men all the time and like being a girlfriend's babysitter because that was such that Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. stresses me out a lot whenever I'm like at a show and someone brings a girlfriend it is like there's so much to being a female comedian that just makes it a little bit harder to be in the space stay contemporaries with other guys because they all like will go play basketball together all the time they all do like all of these side activities separate from stand-up that like you just aren't invited to because you're a girl and they like don't think that they it doesn't make sense to invite you and then when you are hanging out and you're at a show which is like all of your guys's space if one of them brings a girlfriend she feels safest with the other women so she'll Mm. come talk to you and it's like no I'm so sorry, but this is my opportunity to like network and like become better friends with these guys. So they book me more. Yeah. This is a work event. This is a work and event. That's I'm here to play basketball. So and I'm here alone. working and it's not fair. Like, and I want to be nice to you and you seem like a good person, whatever. But like, this is not my social hour. This is me trying to like get in, like, well, get that's why in I regret community. not hooking up with comedians because <laughs> I, I wanted to be taken seriously, but instead I got forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember, I remember two or three years in joking around because these girls would just start like a week before we're getting a spot on a show that I couldn't get booked on. And they were like, well, maybe you could, like, I wasn't even allowed to bark for it or something. And I was just like, wow. And they're like, well, they're hooking up with somebody. And I was like, man, I should go back and try hooking up with people for spots. And so I sort of got a male comedian and goes, it's too late. I see you as a person now. (laughs) God damn. Have you had that experience of girls sitting on you after good sets and stuff? Oh yeah, dude. 
But That's, I'm a man. It's different. It's so different. Know? But also, like, it didn't happen to me when I was younger. I think because I'm, like, older and, like, I'm just more comfortable. And I feel like my comedy now is more reflective of, like, who I am as a person because I, like, know who I am now as opposed mm-hmm. to when I was, like, 25. I was yeah. just, like, what's something funny that I could say about something I read on the fucking news? Whereas today I'm just, like, I want to talk about capitalism, you know, yeah. <laughs> or whatever it is. So, um, but, yeah, like, that doesn't happen a lot. I get some DMs, which is always nice. That's awesome. Saucy. Um, yeah, do, you, do women not get DMs? I got a DM this morning you about get DMs a, that are like, "Hello, beautiful. How may I pay for your life today?" And you're <laughs> that's like, "Great." I got okay. a DM today about one of my like jokes that went viral, where I'm talking about turning thirty, and my manager works for me, or whatever. And somebody DM me in response to that video and said, "Yeah, but you have no eggs left." So that's the kind of DMs oh I get from men. God. Oh my god! Don't <laughs> they know crazy. that you have like three more years to have a baby? I know. I'm like, and honestly, every year I'm shedding thousands of eggs. So I actually probably still have like ten thousand eggs in me. Four of them are viable, but there's still a lot of duds floating yeah. about. Yeah. I'm still a full carton, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> full of rotten eggs. I've also gotten a lot more uh, DMs from guys like correcting jokes I've made than anything else. My, <laughs> you know what the best thing you get as a woman comedian is after a set, a man will come up to you and be like, actually, that joke was pretty funny because, and then they'll explain, explain the joke what? to you. <laughs> and you'll go, yeah, I know. That's why I said it. Do you think I just got up there and randomly put whatever word I thought of next to each other? No, no, no. I said them <laughs> in that order think. because I was referencing the thing that you think you're explaining to yeah. me. This all makes it more crazy that she was able to meet her husband, you know, because mm-hmm. this is, I feel this is like the average experience for most female entertainers. Well, that's why she filled us with so much hope. <laughs> I, I really liked her perspective on things. Like she was talking about, um, I think there's a chapter about, it's called Why I Went Back to Work. And she talks about, because I think for a while she was like, I just want to chill. I just want to be more like uh, Jerry Seinfeld's wife. Just that was so funny. Oh I could is, not that, is that a burn? I don't know her like social Okay, presence. can I say, I felt so spiritually connected to Ali Wong. I, I would love, I'm going to try emailing her again. I feel like we would get along <laughs> so Ali well. Wong at gmail.com. <laughs> We both, we have so much in common. I'm also fixated on Jessica Seinfeld. I reference her all the time. I'm always, the way that it's like, yeah, her cookbook making is a hobby. The fact that Jessica Seinfeld exists in any way is so funny to me. Everything about Jessica Seinfeld, there's this cookbook that she has where she's like looking through the peephole of a donut. And I think about it all the time. I'm like, Jessica Seinfeld literally like saw a donut and was like, what a quaint prop for a photo shoot. Do you eat those? (laughs) (laughs) I do think Ali Wong has kind of like a Tim Dillon Patreon-esque fan base in terms of because she is like one of the most prominent Asian American comedians. She has this whole fan base that has never like really been catered to before mm-hmm, and she does mm-hmm. not give a fuck i don't think she gives a fuck if she has a white listener or not yeah. like she's like my jokes are for who they're for they're for and i don't care so she has the power to kind of be rude to jerry seinfeld's wife which is a i would not do that because i'd be scared of jerry seinfeld and i it, it's so crazy to me that she made those jokes because it felt very brave well, those that line which i thought was pretty aggressive she said jessica softens job is to not embarrass Jerry Seinfeld or something like that it really is and she does a great job of doing it (laughs) and he probably was like that's not what a donut is Jessica (laughs) (laughs) yeah but okay so in that same chapter she talks about watching that documentary uh Jiro dreams of sushi. If yeah, I've seen that. I loved that section and of the book. And she's like, she's like, yes, it's a cool fucking documentary about this guy who dedicated his entire life to his craft. He's the master 
awesome. But then she goes, where the fuck is Mrs. Jiro? How come she's not in the documentary? Yes. Because you know, the, again, going back to the supportive woman well, behind that, every master. Also to be referencing his children as like his protégés and being like, okay, so if he has kids who are like learning his craft, who he is like proud to have under his wing – how did they get there? Like right, who right, right. nursed them up to the point where then they could become sushi masters? Cause right, they did right, not right. come out of the womb mastering sushi. Right, 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 right. And then the other side of that is that you look at Ali Wong, who is equally dedicated to her craft. She is, I mean, so different than Jennifer Gray, who we read for a couple weeks ago. She loves stand up, and she's all about like, I don't care if I fail every day. This is what I love. This is what I do. And she talked about getting up nine times a night after doing a full day of sitcom filming. And then when she talks about doing stand up the day of her wedding, I'm like, this is a, Jiro. She is the Jiro of stand-up. And nobody ever... Like, you know what I mean? And it was such a big concession for her husband to quit his job so that she could be... Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. Like, I don't have... I haven't... Again, it's my first celebrity memoir, but, like, it's interesting to see a female Jiro. But she she talks about her family and her husband a lot in this book, giving them shout-outs. But, like, I think, to your point, the Michael Jordan thing, the Jiro thing, I'm sure other male books that you've read they probably don't talk about their wives as much and like that's like a really interesting psychological and the whole angle of this book is like a letter to her daughters this is not dear girls dear all girls this is dear mira and nikki yeah and so i think that's very interesting because like jiro dreams of sushi is for the fans it's for the people it's not for the sons like she's still no matter what she's doing the goal of it is to like funnel back into creating a better life for her daughters not to like, I mean, obviously she, like, wants to be prolific and she wants her name to be out there. And, like, clearly a lot of stuff she's done is to, mm-hmm. like, raise her own star. But I do think if, like, right now you did say, like, okay, you can either be a mother or you can continue your career, I still believe that she would go be a mother. Whereas most of these men who are masters of their craft see their kids enough that they get to be considered involved dads but are not. So her family's pretty crazy. Her sister's a lesbian. And there was a part where this is like 10 years after she came out, uh, they had a family dinner and her mom found out that her lesbian daughter was like hanging out with like an old high school friend of hers who was like a guy. And she was like, oh, maybe did you guys get together? Like, are you guys boyfriend, girlfriend now? And she's like, no, that guy's married or whatever. And like 10 years later, she's still hoping that like she kind of comes back to being straight. And I feel like the thing with like queerness in a lot of asian cultures especially in asia it's like really weird it's like fucked up in a different way like we're not gonna like beat you up but we think it's a myth like we don't believe that you're gay so it's like for especially for women if you're a lesbian in japan people just go haha like funny bit <laughs> like they don't think you're serious i saw myself in that kind of or like my culture in that and it was very interesting just to like 10 years is so long, dude. Yeah, long you were gay for 10 years. That, that's longer than I've been doing comedy. She's so gay. You know? <laughs> like, let it go. You know? she's, 10, she's got her 10,000 hours. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe it was the part where she talks about, like, oh, she hates being asked, um, you know, what is your, what does it feel like to be an Asian-American comedian in Hollywood? Um, and there's a little bit about how sort of where you grew up sort of informs your identity and, like, how you see yourself. And she gives an example of uh, an Asian-American actress who, like, is sort of in that scarcity mentality where they can only be one. And she doesn't feel like that because she grew up in the West Coast. And somewhere in the earlier chapters, she makes a joke about like, oh, that guy's a lacrosse Asian or that guy's a blank blank Asian. That's yeah. like a real thing that a lot of Asian people joke about. And like, I and I love that because I love, it's so nuanced, you know? I feel like, her. I mean, her family is not stereotypical at all. Mm-hmm. Even for me, I feel like 
sometimes I get booked on certain shows be- just because I'm Asian. I think she does talk about that in her book a little oh, bit. Oh, she's, like, she's like, don't do only Asian lineups. It's yeah, great once yeah. in a while, but... Sure. I mean, I've done all the ones called, like, Chopstick or whatever, <laughs> or, like, Rush Hour, where it's, like, me and a black comedian. Like, I've done all those when I was, like, younger, when I couldn't get booked. Sometimes it'd be fun, but a lot of times, like, it wouldn't go well. And I realized, like, you can't just, like, group me based on my skin color yeah. because we have different lives. And I always joke that, like, the, my fans, the people who fuck with my comedy or Asians who do anal. Like, that's, like, we're anal Asians. And, like, I love that when she said the lacrosse reference because it, like, really shows you sort of, like, the different aspects of, like, mm-hmm. micro Asian American culture, you know? Yeah. I think she talks about, like, the bubble tea Asians who are, like, the equivalent of, like, a basic Asian girl. You yeah. Know? yeah. Just, like, someone who goes and takes her Instagram and just, like, all dessert pictures, you know? Did you, um, did you agree with her feeling that West Coast versus East Coast? Yes, West Coast Asians, like, they're so confident. I live in the West Coast now. I see it. It's so crazy because, A, they're just, like, more of them. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a ton of Asian people. There's a ton of Mexican people. They, I feel like a lot of them have been there for multiple generations, so they really don't question, like, that they're allowed to be there. And I feel like on the East Coast, we're newer. We're, like, first generation, second generation. And I think there are a lot of Asian people on the East Coast, but it's just, like, it just doesn't have the same, like, history and the roots. And yeah. so, like, I feel, when I went to NYU... All my West Coast Asian friends, like, they were just so confident. They didn't feel weird about being Asian and stuff. But, like, I grew up in mid- in the Midwest, so I was, like, very insecure about that. And so, like, sometimes I get jealous of – I actually don't think it's a coincidence that people like Randall Park and Ali Wong are sort of the forefront of, like, Asian-American comedy because they are both grew up, grew up in, the, uh, in the L.A., right, or West Coast. And you just have to have, like, a certain level of confidence to f- – believe that you can be on camera and do shit you know yeah um so i I don't think it's a coincidence i think a lot of like people actually come up on the west coast because they like you know they don't feel weird about being in their skin or whatever it is so i did i did very identify with that part yeah do you have any final thoughts before we leave i really enjoyed this and this inspired me to like read more maybe don't read listen to the pod listen to the pod (laughs) yo because i just i never i don't know i always see these as like a cash grab and so i'm like i'd rather read like you know, between the world and me or something, you know, like something that's going to change my fucking life than like what fucking Mindy Kaling has to say about late night television or whatever the fuck, you know, but this was really good. So if you have any recs on like other ones that are good, I'd be down to read it. (laughs) Oh boy. Oh boy, do we. Will you please plug everything you have to plug? Absolutely. Uh, Please check out my brand new podcast called Cash Cuties. You can follow us at Cash Cuties Pod. We're on all the platforms. We talk to people about money, and then we look through their credit card statements and judge their spending habits with love. It's a good time. Oh, my God. Um, And then please follow me on Instagram. I post a lot of stand-up clips on there. It's at the Fumi Abe. That's T-H-E-F-U-M-I-A-B-E. And we'll tag that in the show notes. Yeah, we love him. I've, I mean, Fumi, you honestly are my oldest stand-up comedian I know, friend. it's so crazy. That, we're in this that open mic I did, I think, in October of my first, and I had started in- 2014 or something. Yeah, uh, and yeah, I had started yeah. in September. Yeah, and here so we are. Crazy. Here we are on this couch you bought on Facebook, market, Facebook Marketplace. Who, we really made it. <laughs> we made it. We're in Queens, baby. <laughs> the last stop on the L train. We fucking made it, baby. <laughs> Um, thank you so much to Fumi for being on this week's episode. You guys, on the Patreon this week, I'm so excited. We're going to both watch her last special yes. that we were talking about and analyze what we think went wrong in her relationship, look up some blind items, kind of do some sleuthing about the comedy world. You guys know we got good dirt. And we will be back on the Patreon. Let us know what you want to hear this week as well. And we love you guys so much. Ashley? Yeah. Who do we love the most this week? This week we love Shotgun Killer. I hope you just keep on killing it, but in like a healthy, safe way. Always the bridesmaid. Do you know what? Being the bride is the most stressful one of all. So be happy. Eileen all over the place. Baby, just go with the flow. I love that you lean. I think standing up straight is for squares. 
Thank you to Ruby Esmeralda in California. Oh, I hope we can come see you in California. It sounds warm there. Thank you, M Panda. Um, stay eating that bamboo. I hear it's actually good for you. Thank you to Odd is Life. Hell yeah, stay odd. D-E's 165. I love all 165 of your E's. Thank you to HK Swerve. Keep swerving, baby. Swerve all those friggin' fools in your way. Thank you to Raja Raja the Gray. That's honestly an underrated neutral. Thank you to Paige Hart Nick Hill. I heart climbing the hill with you. Thank you to friend of the pod M.A. I hope that we can come to Massachusetts and be friends outside the pod. Thank you to Kevin Klein 67. I appreciate you. Time 67. Thank you to Hector Rooney. You are the cutest Looney Toonie. Thank you to Vera Meat, the most savory dish of all. Thank you to Chinelli 1296. I would never change the Chinelli if you were on. Thank you to Solar Powered Purrs. Keep basking in that sunlight, little cat. And thank you, VLaw96. Whatever you say, that's the damn law. No buts about it. Thank you guys so much. Have a great year.